Hello and welcome back to Ghost Divers, an anime podcast. I am your co-host Neve, and I'm joined here by my co-host Connor. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And uh, today we are going to be discussing episodes one through six of Mobile Suit Gundam, the 08th MS team. And we're really hoping that we're going to defeat the curse of Shinigami Sanders today. Uh, <laughs> this is both our third series that we've done on the podcast and also our third attempt at starting the recording of this, this episode. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Through the power uh, of teamwork. If, if, uh, if this recording is, is reaching your ears, uh, it means that my sacrifice to our great overlord, the internet earlier today has been well received and the internet shines its favor down upon us tonight which was not the case last night or earlier, like literally a half hour ago. So yeah. Yeah. Also, um, by the way, don't ask what I sacrificed. It's personal. Yeah. Although weirdly it was fine yesterday in the middle of the day when we recorded the intro. So who knows? Yeah. Just <laughs> odd stuff. So any um, thoughts about, Oh wait, MS team, or do we just want to get into it? I mean, I know we like gave general thoughts for the intro episode, so. Um. Yeah, I think since we're we're now like a day removed from recording the intro episode, I'll. I think I'm able. My memory's faded faded enough to launch into a lot of redundancy without feeling bad about it. So I think just like speaking generally about Gundam. So the Oath MS team, it's. It's set during the One-Year War, um, which is kind of the starting point uh, historically for the Gundam franchise, and it is the main setting for the first Gundam, Gundam 79, which I think we talked about briefly in our intro episode. So uh, going into this, I know from our prior conversation, from our notes, and then from all of the things that I'm itching to talk about, a lot of my analysis is going to be looking backwards somewhat to Universal Century stuff, uh, not only because 08th is set during UC and is explicitly engaging with that timeline um, in those events, uh, but also because the way that 08th is constructed thematically and in a lot of other ways uh, is really really seems to me to be engaging directly with a lot of the thematic uh, thrust of the UC stuff as well. So yeah, this, this is kind of the perfect series for me to say, like, instead of doing first Gundam to do something shorter, let's do this because it still just lets you talk about first Gundam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But like, people only have to sit through, yeah, people only have to sit through two episodes of it, plus the intro and question buckets, but Exactly. And then when we uh, when we do first Gundam later, you know, if you don't want to watch through, what is it, 50-something episodes of, you know, a 1979 anime, well, uh, you know, you can just re-listen to our two episodes of the, the OEF MS team. Uh, I think kicking things off here, we can do a quick recap uh, of episode one. 
So episode one kicks off uh, with some brief character intros. We get a quick view of Earth. Uh, we're introduced to Master Chief Kara and Joshua uh, and Elidor. I have to say, I made the same joke before, but Master Chief Karen, now that we have Halo and Karen has become a meme in recent months, uh, I just, this name hits me differently than I think it, it may have, like, back when this was released. <laughs> and Elidor, you know, that's you know, a decent name as well. So we see Master Chief Karen, we see Elidor, and then the focus cuts back to space, where we're introduced to our main young boy protagonist, our our classic Gundam trope, uh, Shiro Amada. He's on his way to Earth with the other main character, Michelle. While they're uh, being transported to Earth, they come across this kind of skirmish in space uh, where they see a Federation pilot whose unit has been destroyed, um, and he's fighting what seems to be a losing battle against uh, a modified Zaku, which is the mass production Xeonic mobile suit. Shiro pretty much, without hesitation, takes a uh, non-combat unit called a ball, which is like literally a ball with arms, <laughs> and rushes out to rescue uh, this pilot. Uh, he... Don't worry, it has a gun bolted on the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they're like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to take this out, at least let us bolt the gun on top for you. <laughs> or like, you know, sometimes while you're doing repairs to the ship, which is what it feels like this thing is intended for, like, if an enemy comes by, maybe you can get a shot off as you retreat. Like, yeah. it definitely has that vibe, too. Yeah, it's the, like, oh, if it if has some, a gun. <laughs> if some debris, like, comes at you, you can shoot it. So you don't get hit with debris while you're repairing the ship. Yeah, it feels like the equivalent of like in a movie where the action star gives to some civilian their pistol and is like, you'll know when to use it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is for like protection. You're completely untrained, but like. <laughs> yeah, you know, just, yeah, with this some minimal instruction, like <laughs> the bullets come out of this end. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but um, thankfully... Shiro is not some untrained civilian, um, in N fact. No, he's not, which actually is a more interesting point than, than may, may seem to be the case if you're not familiar with the, the standard way that Universal Century stuff works, uh, which I'll get into. But uh, So nonetheless, he takes this dinky ball unit out, somehow manages to fight to a stalemate with this modified Zaku. Both of the units are pretty much destroyed, both of the pilots eject and end up in this uh, kind of destroyed derelict Federation ship, uh, this like ship carcass. Once they get inside the ship, they kind of exchange gunfire. It seems like they're going to duel to the death. And eventually, uh, I can't remember the exact sequence of events, but Shiro, either before or after seeing that his his assailant is an attractive woman um decides i feel like he if i remember correctly like literally when they eject shiro's like a woman yeah i think <laughs> i like, think you're right yeah yeah but then it's after um actually getting i don't even know if he like gets the shot immediately but there's this moment where he realizes that she's out of ammo and like moves closer um and then sees that she's wounded and is like i'm going to you know, dress your wounds, come with me. 
while she's like, please kill me. I don't want to be a prisoner. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Yes. Thank you. So uh, all of that happens. Shiro, yes, decides to patch her suit uh, and dress her wounds um, and then basically convinces her to engineer an escape attempt with him, which they do successfully by detonating a bunch of munitions, still active munitions that are in the ship and out like kind of orbiting around the ship. When they complete this engineered plot, there is a moment where they, they share a moment of spontaneous romance where uh, Ina, who is the Xeon pilot, kind of comments that it's reminiscent of fireworks, and then they're rescued. Uh, it's notable that Ina is rescued first by some Xeonic comrades, and then Shiro is rescued shortly thereafter. But Ina, uh, kind of in a parallel moment, chooses to spare uh, Shiro, when she could pretty easily kill him and his rescuer. And uh, before parting, uh, she gives him a watch to remember her by, which uh, we come to learn is pretty significant because the watch has some special meaning for her. Um, it also looks like something straight out of like Magic Knight Ray Earth or like the Norn from... Uh, Shin Megami Tensei or something it's like it feels so out of place with what I know of Gundam and I I love it because uh, Magic Knight Ray Earth is like 100% my shit so (laughs) yeah here's this Escudo watch that will transform once you like learn to believe in yourself more yeah and eventually it will hold the soul of a thing called a rune god and then once you prove yourself and like build yourself up strong enough the rune god just turns out to be a badass ancient mech so Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, that's, that's not part of the recap. That doesn't actually happen in this series. But if that sounds really cool, check out our Rare series, which is coming shortly. Yeah. Um, so another important thing that we see in this episode is we see an event from Gundam 79. It's a speech that Giren Zabi gives when his brother Garma is killed. Uh, this is actually a really significant moment in Gundam 79, but it happens in like a third of the way through, like episode 12, I think. Yeah, which again, for context, would be like when this first aired, when both uh, First Gundam and 08th MS Team aired in the West on Toonami, s- someone would have watched all of 08th MS Team before they got to that episode. <laughs> yeah, and they would have been like, oh, oh, okay, I got it. That makes sense now. All these portraits of, like, frumpy, like, men that are, keep hanging in the background throughout O8th MS team. Like, I know who these men are now. They're the leaders of Xeon. Okay. So I think this is also a good moment to just, like, briefly step back and give uh, some context for the whole, like, one-year war thing, which I know we'll get into more, but just to ground our discussion... Uh, the One Year War is basically uh, an event that takes place. It's a war between the Earth Federation, which governs Earth, and uh, Zeon, which is a kind of confederation of colonies. The main crux of the war is that Earth Federation holds dominion over the colonies, and the colonists decide that they want uh, self-determination. So they rebel against Earth um, with a significantly smaller population and army 
the conflict kind of uh, proceeds from there. And uh, ultimately, in First Gundam, we see the end of it, which is that the Zabi family, uh, the Zabis being the ruling, more or less ruling family of Zeon, uh, are all killed, uh, and Zeon is essentially destroyed. The significance of the speech that we see in uh, episode one of 08 is that it's this moment where Giran Zabi, who is the oldest, I believe the oldest brother or son of the Zabi family, uh, kind of takes more control, takes control of Zeon and moves it in a more see, um, explicitly fascistic direction and declares intention to dominate the earth as well so not like not only does Zeon now want self-determination but essentially we're going to we're signaling now we're going to depose the the federation on on earth and the speech is broadcast to earth in uh in first Gundam and so all of the uh, part of the reason it's a momentous thing in first Gundam is that all of the main characters the entire federation army and everyone on earth more or less uh sees this speech so this is an interesting moment, not only to like tie in the narratives and give you to like locate the narrative of 08th within this this larger context of like the One Year War and First Gundam, uh, but it also is if if you're familiar with all the stuff that's going on in First Gundam, it gives this backdrop of like the political drama and intrigue that's going on. Um, so it's kind of a subtle, a, a subtle deployment of this uh, connection here. And uh, so, long recap, but I front loaded all of the, all of the good first Gundam context stuff. So I know you have some thoughts. Yeah, this is like compared to especially Ghost in the Shell. There are definitely parts where I'm like, I know I'm just gonna go for like a half hour talking about gender and major Kuzanagi or something. And Connor will like sit there and be like, yep. And then just like (laughs) (laughs) say like a few sentences being like, Oh, that was, yeah. What you said that thing about like this, here's like a little quick thought I have on it. I feel like this is probably gonna be a a bit more of the reverse. Um, Not that I don't have a fondness for Gundam, but like, like this specific you know, 08th MS team, or that I don't, like, enjoy it a fair amount, but I'm more interested in hearing from you, like, how you're responding to this and how it is relating to the broader knowledge you have about Universal Century, which, like, this is my main Universal Century series. I forget if I mentioned this on a recording that's going to survive, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched, like, some episodes of First Gundam, I believe, but, like, not enough to really know, and it may have even been, like, before that speech, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, my guess is it was, like, if there was a VHS release or a DVD <laughs> release or something that I was look- watching, it would have been some of that. One thing I realized that I hadn't, like, quite mentioned when we first talked about our intro to anime, um, I talked about, like, buying DVD box sets used and things like that, but also, like... A ton of stuff I just watched because, like, they were so expensive back in the day that people would often have... They'd be buying them one at a time, and so you would, like, 
just pass around the, the DVDs that you had or like the VHSs that you had with your friends and you would watch them. So like I've watched a ton of Ra- uh, Fawn and never and like finished watching it because I was watching a friend's copy and then like I think just like went to undergrad before they got all of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and like that was just there's so much anime that I know I've seen the beginning of and I don't know if I've seen the end of. I know for a fact I haven't seen the end of First Gundam, but um, Hot Couch Guy where we would get high and watch anime. I like I'm fairly certain probably had First Gundam. My guess is I probably watched some of it there. <laughs> I may have borrowed some of it. Who knows? But like I just don't have this context is the, the point of my digression here that i'm kind of interested to hear from you especially because i've listened to the great gundam episode a uh, great gundam project episodes on this and i know they were my impression so far i don't know it remains to be seen you've only watched half of this so far but was that they were a lot more cold on 08th ms team than you have been and so i'm also like oh what are like these different takes and then it'll be exciting once you know at this point i thought about Oh, I should just start watching first Gundam, and I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save Gundam '79 for the podcast. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's gonna be good. <laughs> I want, um, I want to fully have the experience that you've had with some of the stuff of being like, I have not watched any of this. Like, I know you're doing that with Utena. You haven't watched any Utena. I am. Gonna... <laughs> I, I'm really want. I have been like really wanting to for months, and I'm just like, no, I can't. I can't sneak Utena. I want to. I want to preserve my like my first reaction to to the series like for this podcast but yeah like i guess my general thoughts here i think my biggest one and we'll get into this more as we go along especially with karen i i think i'll have more thoughts about karen when we get to later episodes we see so little of her here but i love her she's probably my favorite character in the series and my second favorite is probably Ina. So, like, of course, I love the two women. And from what I know about Gundam, from what I've, like, heard about Gundam, uh, my impression is that, like, in some ways, this 08th MS team allows them to be more badass and yet still does some, like, not great things with them, which I'll kind of get into as they go along. Overall, I think I'm a little bit more positive with, like, Ina's story and the the way that she has this like love story with Shiro it works for me it doesn't work as well for me as it would if Shiro was also a woman but like it works for me (laughs) I buy I buy this like can love bloom on a battlefield uh star-crossed lovers thing so yeah I I enjoy it and you know this is the beginning of it um we won't get a ton into it in this episode but you know stuff to look forward to and and really the fireworks is a moment here like i think the fact that there's that moment where they watch the derelict ship explode and they're like oh it's like fireworks does a, a not all the heavy lifting but does like some important work for me in buying into this like romance story and everything because i just one i have like a general fondness for the anime trope of people looking at fireworks and having this like emotional response to fireworks as this ephemeral thing and like the beauty of it. Um, but also my favorite Gundam fandom don't come for me. Uh, <laughs> iron blooded orphans um, has like a significant plot point about trying to create 
fireworks for a very special occasion. And so this also, watching it now, going back to this after watching Iron-Blooded Orphans, I'm like, ooh, yeah, this is, this is like hitting me in a way that is purely emotional and so they don't have a ton intellectually to say about it um but just that it like emotionally hits for me and overall i just enjoy this episode as well the whole like we're starting in space and then there's the process of going to earth i know in other aspects of gundam that like is further drawn out those are some of my favorite episodes in iron-blooded orphans as well but yeah i i mean my final thought here we'll we'll get to which is just like what's your I guess I can do this to like throw to you, especially knowing what I know about the series. I really see Shiro as hopelessly optimistic and kind of foolishly so. And so I'm definitely curious of like, what is your read of Shiro and this, this like seeming idealism of literally going from they are enemies to, oh, cute girl, Maybe they're like people on the other side as well. Isn't war bad? <laughs> yeah. um, there's this series in particular, I think is one where you can look and you can see where um, often in the West, the popular understanding of Gundam is that the message of the show is war is bad and not that like Imperial military hegemony will take people and use them as weapons to like continue to enforce the horrors and so like even when war is good in the sense that it's taking down fascistic forces it can still also be like reinforcing these other terrible hegemonies that's far more complex than just war is bad and wouldn't it be great if there was peace (laughs) yeah um i think i want to reserve a space for like discussing the the political drama of Gundam, because I, I do think it is just speaking on the universal century stuff, like to, to make this a reasonable scope discussion. I do think it is a more like complex and sophisticated political drama than many people would like to reduce it to even just like the parallel between the Federation and Zeon First Gundam, like, very explicitly evokes Nazi Germany in relation to Zeon. But I really don't think the conflict between, like, I don't think Zeon is reducible to just being, like, this is an analog of Nazi Germany. And that, therefore, like, this conflict is, we should read this as, like, in a kind of, like, mirroring of World War Two. I think that... Gundam, again, like Gundam 79, sets that up as a thing that it prompts you to do, while also, like, through a set of, uh, through several different, like, maneuvers, distancing itself from that and complicating that reading, um, if that makes any sense. But there's actually a moment in Gundam 79, I guess a kind of infamous moment, where, like, Adolf Hitler is, like, a historical figure in the like universe of Gundam 79 and Giran Zabi is like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, I'm basically like Hitler. And so like the show is being, you know, I, when that happens, I don't think the show is just being like, 
yeah, Guren Zabi is Hitler. That's how you like should read this. It is. Uh, it I think it my reading of Gundam seventy nine and then especially like 08 leans much more towards um, the reading that you laid out, uh, where it has more to do with like different types of regimes and like how hegemony reinforces itself and like it's certainly not the case that gundam is like war is good but i think the like war is bad idea is so like obvious that it's just it's like like, it's an oversimplification of a far more nuanced take on what war actually is right (laughs) yeah exactly and it's also like it's presented as a matter of course it's like there's this hard sci-fi aspect of Gundam that dovetails with the political drama where it's just like, yeah, we're going to present the brutality of war. Like, yeah, war is like, war is terrible. Like, this is obvious. That's not like the end all be all of what we're going to be like, what is going to be considered. Sorry, that's a super long tangent, but it does like, there's some, it lays out some of the stuff that like I think is really important for uh, watching 08th. So as far as my take on episode one, and by the way, I will get back to your question about Shiro. Um, <laughs> episode one, I think like it makes, it really signals like the type of show that this is going to be um, and the type of engagement it's going to have with the Universal Century stuff, specifically through like deploying some of the key Gundam troops, um, or like the UC Gundam troops, right away, uh, in some interesting ways. Uh, so two of the main like narrative troops that are really present here, and then um, form the framework for 08th, are the um, the young boy protagonist Shiro, who's like clearly reminiscent of prior young boy protagonists like Amuro and Camille. Uh, and Judo and Uso in the first like four Gundam series and you know more could be named because it's a Gundam thing the interesting thing about Shiro is that he starts from a different a different place than pretty much all of those previous protagonists do when he's introduced to us he's already a soldier and not only is he a soldier but he's like an intentional soldier someone who is presumably like enlisted from what he says, it's clear like that he's ideologically committed to this war. Like he knows why he fights. He's super pumped about defeating Zeon and he's like totally intrepid and unafraid of battle, et cetera, et cetera. So he's kind of this, like in a way it's gesturing towards this more like fully formed quote unquote hero archetype. Uh, Which, to me, what stands out about this is it seems almost like Oath is being like, is with Shiro is literalizing the fact of their own reception of this trope. Like, oh, like, all of the UC stuff, like, gives us this trope that we just, like, we now receive because we're creating a new Gundam series in this timeline but instead of like recreating this narrative arc 
that is like such a huge part of these previous series. Um, the narrative arc being like, you know, this young boy starts as a civilian and then through a series of circumstances, like is basically impressed into combat and then like grows into the being this like valorous soldier. Oath is like, no, like we're just picking up, like we've watched all these series and like, we know what the end point is. So we're just like receiving this trope as like a finished product. So like, we're taking the like fully formed soldier in his final form and then like starting with that which is really uh a fascinating way to engage with this um and also in a certain way allows them to like look examine this trope from like kind of the opposite angle yeah the other thing about shiro that is interesting is in spite of his like ideological commitment to this conflict uh, he also has this humanity that the show like pretty much foregrounds as well, and I think I think this is significant because like it's such a quick flip from him like blasting out of the ship and his ball unit like I have to defeat Zeon to like as soon as he sees Ina, he is like oh. I'm going to like risk my life and do this kind of semi-treasonous thing to save this person who I don't even know. And like, maybe it's because she is really attractive. Maybe not probably a little bit, but nonetheless, like that's important. And it also leads me into uh, the other main Gundam trope that I see like being deployed here, which is this star cross lovers on the battlefield thing. It's this is a big part of Universal Century stuff. Pretty much always ends badly. There's uh Amuro and Mala is like the most obvious example in Kingdom 79, where, spoiler alert, Amuro ends up killing Lala and it like traumatizes him horribly. Come on, um, Connor, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh jeez, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. I said spoiler alert. I won't the, the it's still dramatic like the way it happens is you won't see it coming um <laughs> it's, it's it's the the how not the what that right is, yes that is why i i care about media yes and as an aside like i always have a thing about twist endings where you know if people don't want to have it if people say like don't spoil it for me it's no worries but if if knowing the ending of the movie like makes the movie bad and unenjoyable then like it probably you know probably wasn't that great to begin with um (laughs) yeah um i know that i think we are both aligned on that i'm sure there are people who disagree but um i've always found those movies where it's like there's a big twist like don't spoil it and then i watch it and i hit the twist and then I try and rewatch it later. I'm like, Oh, that was fun. And I'm just like, this is so bad. Yeah. Like the, the only thing that was good about this was watching it the first time and getting a twist, which is different than there are definitely things where I've had that twist and then you rewatch it again. 
and it's a different experience, but then it's fun being like, oh my God, like, let me look at how artfully they set this up, or let me look at how they were already playing with the themes that the, like, twist was going to then make me aware of, and I always find those better. (laughs) Yeah. And often I found it more rewarding sometimes if I'm, like, unsure if I want to watch something for someone to just spoil it for me and be like, oh, that sounds interesting, and then I just go to that second watch because that second watch experience is more fun for me um <laughs> yeah i feel like there's a big difference between like i mean i'm just gonna rip on like the sixth sense which <laughs> is a movie to me where it's just like you know i mean blah, blah. Um, a lot of m night Shyamalan twist stuff feels like that yeah um but like there's a big difference between like that and then like spoiler alert um like madoka which i know is a series that we have like mixed feelings on um yeah but where Um, there's like there's this big kind of like gotcha twist and it's like okay but this is still interesting even after like i know the gotcha yeah so sorry for that tangent i uh so i will now get back to the the subject of this whole like rant which was your original question this Starcross Lovers on the Battlefield thing, on one hand, it's really important because it, like, this other crucial ingredient of Gundam is this, like, romance aspect, a big part of, like, the Gundam formula. Um, and the Starcross Lovers is, you know, a key, like, propelling element of that. But I think it's also a really important, like, crux for bringing out the political drama as well. It helps get us closer to like a more comprehensive reading of what I think is set up by the political drama of like UC stuff, which is not like a totally relativistic understanding of political regimes, but a sense that like people are, but the sense of how they exploit people and how the the tragedy of that exploitation and that is often brought out by like this quasi magical i mean it literally is like kind of magic with new type stuff but this quasi magical sense of connection between people where people are able to just like certain people have a kind of like spontaneous connection that's extremely strong and deeper than you know a basic like not basic but deeper than like a physical attraction it's kind of like a love at first sight but it's often presented as something that's like almost um you know a soulmate um that you just like encounter spontaneously this this girl often at times a girl the protagonist encounters on the other side without knowing with or without knowing that she is like an enemy soldier um, and is just like instantly, you know, bonded to her in some like psychic soul bonding way. I think this trope is really important for like, you know, again, setting up like this whole mix of themes that you see Gundam stuff is, is often dealing with. And uh, yeah, I, that is how I read Shiro, his optimism and his engagement with, with Aina, at least, like, to start off with. Yeah, I think the 
so often a thing that will be said about 08th MS team is that it is Gundam without new types. And part of it is I see where they're coming from with like what I know about new types and the, the trope, which is that like in other stuff, Shiro and Ina would just be new types. Yes, correct. But I disagree with the statement and I want to talk about this more when we get to a second discussion episode because like as I already mentioned, we don't get a ton of the romance between Shiro and Ina here, but also there's just other things that are going to happen in the second half of the series where the statement that this is Gundam without new types is I think at the most is like, or at the least is um, an overstatement. And that I, I think this series is actually, from my point of view, heavily engaged with the trope of new types and is trying to present a certain view on it. Like I, for in some ways, like the trope of love at first sight, I think as you're also alluding to here is like a, a trope that exists in wider media that also is a part of the new type is like a, a fact a factor of it, even though what new types are, are beyond just this trope of love at first sight. Um, but like in order to even buy into the new type as a concept, you have to kind of buy into the fictional conceit of love at first sight, which we are now getting here. So like, I think it is already intentionally engaging with new type stuff. And then I also think like, we will get there and I'll talk about why I think a lot of people in the West think that 08th MS team is a show about Gundam without new types. Whereas I think 08th MS team is actually a show that is extremely about new types and is like doing another commentary on it. Uh, but that's a, that's a preview for next time, dear listeners. And also you Connor. <laughs> yeah. I think um, it's, it's notable. The idea of like in other stuff, Shiro and Aina would be new types. It's notable that like the all of the UC iterations of this trope, like both people are new types. And so the way that like and and by the way, for our viewers, like I haven't watched the final six episodes yet, so I'm speaking now blindly. <laughs> I don't know what happens or how this is developed, but like I totally agree that it is it is like engaging with this concept like heavily head on from the start whether or not they are actually like said or grounded as like new types within the fiction of 08th it is immediately like gesturing at this trope that is inextricably like for Gundam tied to like the new type thing yeah I to put like what I'm comfortable saying right now, especially knowing that not only have listeners not necessarily watched the second half of the series, but also that you haven't is just that I think when it is often stated that, Oh, 08th MS team is Gundam without new, new types. It comes with it, this kind of connotation or assumption of like, and new types is the dumb magical shit. And my real, robot mecha anime and i like 08th ms team more because it doesn't have it and like one you're wrong it does have it we'll get there it has it (laughs) um but 
two, I don't think that the creators of this show are making Shiro and Aina not new types because they're trying to get the dumb magical new type shit out of their show. I think they are doing it because they are trying to explore the theme of new types. And part of the way that you do that is by saying, what if we decouple some of the tropes of the new type that are tied to this love at first sight and we remove it so that we can like explore this in isolation. And then we can also explore other things in isolation later on. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Like I'm especially excited for episode seven through 12 Connor. Like I really want you to watch these episodes and get what your read are. Um, also because like 10 and 11 are just incredible episodes. Like I just really enjoy them as episodes. So and then 12, um, it's like, we shouldn't even air it. 12 we'll get (laughs) we will get to when we talk about 12 i'll talk about why i don't think it aired and why i think it not airing has crucially changed so many people's perceptions of this series because i think that that episode is in fact highly crucial to oh ms team so yeah we'll we'll get there i'm looking forward (laughs) hopefully that's making you excited connor Oh, um, I'm I'm like I'm trembling in my seat right now because yeah. we started talking about new types and I'm just like, <laughs> this is my dissertation. Um, also, shout out to Cyber New Type IRL Autumn. <laughs> oh, Cyber New Type. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so they've, been, they've been enhanced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. I think this might be a good moment for like let's let's push on to episode two. Unless you have any like final thoughts you want to get out right now. No, I'm I'm good to move forward. Okay. Um, the one thing I'm going to do, I'll, I'll do it as we go. Basically, like, so when we get to episode two, we're on the ground. The, the entire team is together. So this is where we really see like the titular 08th MS team. And I want to run through the team and like who they are and also what are their ranks and what's the hierarchy here because when i first watched the show i got really confused sometimes about like wait what is the actual power dynamics at work here um and i think some of it is almost just them expecting people to have like knowledge of even just like oh that's the insignia on their jacket and so now i know what their rank is like i i think that's where this is coming from. I think that's where people have figured out some of these ranks. Cause I don't think they ever say like Elidor's rank explicitly in the show, aside from just like what's on his uniform. So these first few people, the first one is Lieutenant Colonel Kojima. Uh, we never get his first name. I'm assuming it's Hideo. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah. That's and he's so charge. he's like, he, yeah, he's the one who's in charge of basically this entire, like, battalion or whatever. Like, basically everybody who is here at this base is underneath Lieutenant Colonel Kojima. He's, like, the top-ranking official in, in this entire show that we see. Next up is Captain Jidan Nickard, who is the old guy who's often drinking alcohol and, like, slacking off. Has the girlfriend in the village, Maria, in one of the episodes. This guy is, like, such just... Uh, they don't go all the way with it, but like the trope of horny grandpa in anime that like I had absolutely no, like he could have just been literally a field soldier, like lowest rank. No, he's captain. He's above Shiro Amada, who's an ensign. So next up here is Shiro Amada, who's an ensign. I guess it makes sense that Jidan never goes on any missions. That's the like part here that makes sense in terms of rank. So, and then Shiro Amada is above 
uh, Master Chief Petty Officer, which is the full rank title, although in the show they often just say Master Chief Halo Jump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also, Karen Joshua, two first names here. Really, having that last name Joshua is like, I know it's like kind of a weird way of reading it. I, my headcanon is that Karen is trans. She's like buff and badass in all these ways where I'm like, like when I watch the show, I want to be Karen and I want to be dating Ina. Like, I just want like Karen Ina to somehow <laughs> like get rid of Shiro, make Karen the protagonist. They fall in love. It's I'm great. picturing you this like is... rubbing your hands together as you're saying this. <laughs> no, I'm actually gesturing excitedly. <laughs> so, but yeah, especially in these first episodes, you'll often see Shiro kind of deferring to Karen, which I think uh, now that I understand the ranks, I more clearly understand as him being like, okay, even though I technically outrank you, you have the experience here. And so I'm going to defer to you to some degree. Although in this episode, it um, that's not entirely true. And he kind of like, We'll get to it. Underneath Master Chief Petty Officer Karen Joshua is Chief Petty Officer Terry Shinigami Sanders Jr. Um, Shinigami often being translated as like Sanders the Reaper in this series. This is a concept that exists in Japan that at the time that 08th MS team was localized, I don't think was really understood here. Thankfully, things like Death Note taught all anime watching fans what a shinigami is but uh back then they translated it as the reaper shinigami just kind of broadly this like concept of death god so it it uh it overlaps with reaper and then underneath um also shinigami sanders is the one who shiro rescued in episode one um he was the pilot who was fighting against the modified zaku and who shiro rescued when going out in that ball unit um that's an important i think piece for the whole dynamic going on with sanders for both why he believes so the thing with him is that there's like this curse we'll get into it later but part of why he believes that shiro might be able to free him from this curse as well as why he throughout the series is the most intensely loyal to shiro out of everyone because he's had like you didn't you could have left me to die you're on some shuttle going to earth you went out in a ball unit to save me i like i'm gonna have your back and then underneath him is both Elador Massis and Michelle Ninarich, who are both petty officers. And so they are the same rank. And the the vibe that you get of Elador kind of being in charge and Michelle being the subordinate, as I think, again, the Elador has been at this. He's familiar with the jungle. He's familiar with this tank that they drive, which is a badass tank. I love it. Um, it like they're going through the jungle and it like hovers and then it will like put down a thing on the ground and feel vibrations. And then it can be like, oh, here's where the other Gundam or like other mecha um, in the because they're not Gundams, they're Zaku. Um, the other Zaku, like, in the forest are... I'm reading them, trying to find them. Um, although, actually, even doing it to track, like, where the ground Gundams that the, the 08th MS team is piloting. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, this is the biggest one that confused me, because they specifically, I think, call Michelle an officer in the first episode. And so when I got to the second episode, I was like, why is Michelle, like, literally the bottom rung here? And it's because <laughs> literally all of them are like petty officer above 
which I guess kind of makes sense that they're like giving them a bunch of ground Gundams and stuff that they would be like a bit higher ranking than just a, you know, private or whatever. But yeah, for some reason, I just assumed Elador was a private when I first watched this. So if you're watching along and you were also confused, hopefully this explained it for you. Also, I think just like the dynamics of the hierarchy here are helpful for understanding when we talk about more of the relationships as it goes on. So that's my big long digression, but we have the whole team together and we see them going with their first ground battle. Even though in the previous episode, we saw Shiro being this highly skilled pilot, again, literally going out and like the equivalent of a Jameson unit to fight, you know, Major Kuzanagi (laughs) or whatever, maybe not Major Kuzanagi. That's like, far beyond just a modified Zaku. But you oh, yeah. get what I mean. Yeah. You get what I mean. Like, um, he's going on the Jameson to fight whatever whatever the whatever, name of that thing is. The the Marine, the, the Japanese Marines shit. Oh, I, I was thinking the... Because um, I'm thinking, like, the, the Zaku might be a little bit below. So it's when they are going into the Chinatown, and there's that guy who, like, opens up his face and everything. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah, yeah it's guy. like the Jameson fading him. Like... <laughs> Because also he was clearly modified. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, despite his like previously clearly highly skilled as a pilot, we see him struggling here and it's specifically around the new constraints. Um, one, gravity just like limits his uh, way to his ability to maneuver. Things feel more sluggish. He is also not used to things like controlling when you have your lights on in the jungle because the lights might give you away things like that and there's kind of a skirmish and i forget how many zaku there are originally but there's one that's remaining i think there's Um, two yeah and shiro basically like presses on and the rest of the team lose touch with him because he's trying to hunt down the zaku and they pull back and throughout it we get these scenes where they're like wondering if he's dead hoping he's okay things like that meanwhile shiro is now like basically lost in the jungle or is like just out there we get a a lot about his discomfort as well with like how hot it is how stinky it is like you can smell the dirt and everything which is just something he's not used to they're really playing out this like difference between earthlings and space noids Mm -hmm. um it comes up again and again especially in his first few episodes And at one point, he's just, like, completely sweating. He's run out of water. And he goes in search and finds a pool at the bottom of a waterfall. So at least it is running water. This is safe water to drink. (laughs) And uh, in the process, he encounters a young girl from a nearby village. We find out more about her next episode, but her name is Kiki. She is canonically underage And the very first introduction we get to her is also our first, like, full-on anime titties of uh, ghost divers. So this is the thing that's going to happen with anime. It sucks. I'm going to have more thoughts about this when we get to Evangelion because I feel like Evangelion is trying to engage with the trope and, in my opinion, ultimately fails the evidence that ultimately fails is the fact that Evangelion itself as a franchise markets like figures and posters and books and all kinds of things based on these sexualized young women. And 
I feel like if you truly succeeded at that, you probably wouldn't be making a like resin figure of like a mostly naked Ray and Asuka or whatever. But the series itself does try to engage with it. And I feel like I can then, because it is trying to engage with it, I can say more interesting things about yeah. like, that's going to be is... a very interesting conversation when we get to it. Yeah. Like, like what is one, why does this even happen in anime and where is it coming from and like what is the engagement with it um i think the one thing i'm just gonna say right here is on one hand it sucks it's shitty it sucks on the other there's some weird like vaguely racist or whatever stuff around like how bad japanese anime is about sexualizing young girls and it's like please watch america like anything american we sexualize high school girls all the time in america too yeah. Um, we do it in different ways that are more culturally coded for us to feel comfortable with it. But we do it, too, especially around young women of color, um, especially around queer women, like black women or black girls of color, not black women of color, but black girls of color who are like incredibly young in schools get highly sexualized by their own teachers and in ways that their white counterparts aren't. So. I have complex feelings about this. I don't think either is good, but also I think there's an approach that often comes up in the West of like, oh, I am watching this anime and it's sexualizing young girls. And so it is bad that completely forgets to like interrogate how this is a, a thing that exists broadly in a lot of cultures, including our own. And that also our perception of the way that Japan does it is highly skewed by the fact that the main form of uh, media that primarily comes to us from Japan is literally stuff made for shonen and shoujo, which are young boys and young girls, where, of course, they're going to feature those types of characters, Mm -hmm. which, again, does not necessarily make the sexualization okay, but it is also further skewing us towards like we are going to be seeing things for a young adult audience that might be more prone to featuring young like you know young women yeah like catering Um, to like the young i think this is actually really (laughs) like not only insightful but like really revealing for this exact dynamic that we see playing out here um yeah but like catering to like the the gay like to use a loaded term the gaze of like a, a young like audience in some ways yeah like I'll get into it more when we get to Evangelion. When I first watched it, I was in high school. And back then I was like, oh, I'm attracted to Ray," And that made sense because I was literally her age when I was mm-hmm. watching it. Right. And it yeah. is in retrospect that when I look at Evangelion, where I'm like, oh, this is actually creeping me out. But back then it didn't because like I was the target demographic and for me as a 16 year old looking at a 16 year, like a depiction of a 16 year old girl that my attraction back then was less creepy than the idea of like a room full of adults creating that is to me. And the discomfort that I now feel watching it as an adult where I'm no longer that age, but we'll get into it more as we get there where I have like deeper thoughts and I have actual essays I'm going to point to as well. So preview for our, the next series we're doing, Evangelion. Sorry to talk about it for those of you who don't care about Evangelion. <laughs> um, it's it's going to it's going to be present, ever present in Ghost Divers. So yeah, you know. Um, just again, this is one of the things too of like I want to 
I want to watch more Jose anime on the show, which is like anime geared towards adult women in Japan. But also a lot of it doesn't get localized. Like most of what we get is especially shonen. We get a ton of shonen mm-hmm. in the West. And so and some of that is that shonen is one of the biggest demographics for manga and anime. But I, I think also what we get in the West is even further um, skewed that direction than what exists in Japan because we're often getting the most popular series. Yeah. And so like for this discussion, I always want to foreground that of this sucks, but also this isn't all of Japanese culture. And it, it annoys me a lot when that is the perception that people have of like Japanese culture thinks this is okay because that's not really the case. And it, it's an oversimplification of like American culture also thinks this, this is okay when we're doing like sexualized cheerleaders or whatever. So like that is more what the Japanese culture thinks this is okay is. But anyway, this is a big digression. So <laughs> Shiro. I will say I'm really glad <laughs> if I can just interject like and prolong this digression. When we were recording this last time, but by this point in the recording, like we had become the internet was just completely like it it had decided we were no longer going to be recording. Yeah. Um, the the curse of Shinigami Sanders had gotten to us. <laughs> yeah, our third series. Oh no. Um but uh so basically what was happening was like you would be talking you were addressing that subject and you would be talking for like or you'd be talking and it would be like on my end it would be like one second or like two seconds of audio and then like eight or nine seconds of silence and at one point this had been going on for like like a couple minutes and at one point there was just like a very long silence and literally like the next thing i heard was anime titties and i was like oh my god like i have completely lost the plot here (laughs) and uh but like i'm glad that we're doing this again now um because like it's all going good knock on wood yeah yeah i'm i'm knocking on wood on my on my desk um but uh i'm i'm very glad that like i actually heard that whole thing this time because i think that is going to be like a great touch point for us not only as we go through like 08th where i think we'll talk about this the like situation with kiki a little bit more but also going forward um so thank you for for going through that again because yeah (laughs) i didn't get a whole lot out of it last time the other thing i want to say here is one if you're like listening to this and you're like i kind of felt like i didn't like that kiki scene i don't think they ever really do this with kiki again there's still some weird stuff that comes up with kiki but like this is the the one time that they explicitly sexualize her in this way. Um, And in general, I think she's a badass character and even her reaction to Shiro going to drink from the pool, her emerging out him seeing her naked and then her immediately going and grabbing a gun and shooting at him is like a much better reaction to this kind of thing than normally happens in a lot of anime. Yeah. Even though at the same time, they still wanted me as the viewer to like leer at her naked as well, which is like, I'm not giving them the full pass here, but I do. I enjoy that reaction, that reaction of like, I'm going to get a gun and shoot at you, you pervert. And throughout the rest of this 
series, like the next episode, we get her saying like, hey, why are you looking at me naked, you pervert? Yeah. The part where it sucks is then where Shiro's like, oh, it was an accident, but also you were so beautiful and that's why I ended up staring. And then she's like blushing and I'm like, this sucks to you. So yeah, anytime that it's like weird, uh, kind of gross sex stuff that happens, which we'll also get to with Karen. And then it's like, now I have feelings for this character. I, I hate that in this series, even though for the rest of it, I kind of, I have some decent fondness. Um, also, I feel like they never do this with Ina, which is one of the reasons why the Shiro Ina romance works for me because it's never this like creepy leery thing. Yeah. I think the way, I mean, I'll join with you in saying like, and I was actually rewatching this earlier because I knew like, this was going to be a crucial point because like, the way sexuality is presented in this series, I think it does have a lot of significance. Um, And it is like, in a certain way, it it has some complexity, but on my first impression and even more so like rewatching it earlier, I would join with you in saying like, I definitely think there are some moments that are like disappointing and cannot be excused, especially like here, just filmically, I think you're you're spot on like that we are there's no way of getting out of this like we are invited to leer at Kiki's body like filmically not just like by the presence of her being naked but like the way it is presented as well is like unmistakable yeah but anyway after that long digression so as Shiro's running away from Kiki shooting at him because he was definitely being a bit of a pervert, even though some of it was accidental, he finally spots the enemy Zaku and basically resorts to classic FPS tactic of camping, waiting for the Zaku to appear and then taking it down, thereby proving himself, returning to base. Um, I love the moment of like the visual of the the ground Gundam walking to the base and then it like zooms in and like Shiro's literally like napping in it. And it's just like on <laughs> autopilot. Yeah. Um, but, um, and that's, this is kind of the, the conclusion. Um, I also put in the synopsis, we're getting some cutaway scenes to Ina arriving at a Xeon lab. I don't think they really specifically state like where this is located, but we know how fiction works. We know that this is like, somewhere in the vicinity of where the 08th MS team's base is. and High that, in the like, sky, above the events yeah. you just saw. And so, like, of course they are going to meet up again. We know fiction. We understand it. And when she arrives, she meets with her brother. There's this, like, brief moment where they're, like, hugging, and there's this reuniting before it's revealed that they're brother and sister. Um, and I, the show is going to play on Shiro misunderstanding when he finally opens up, he like realizes that the watch can open and inside there's a photo of Ina with, I've actually totally drawn a blank on the, his name, her brother. It's it's genius. Um, Oh yeah. Genius. genius. Yeah. Because they do a, yeah. When the like asshole shows up, they say, like, even Maxim saying genius. Man, yeah, Guineas is, or, like, genius is her brother. And, you know, Shiro at first mistakes for, like, her boyfriend. And that's what the, the watch is. Um, but, in fact, 
it's heavily implied. They never directly state it, but that... So he has some unnamed anime disease. You know, if you don't take your meds, you cough probably. Maybe you cough up blood. It's really unclear what the disease is other than you have to take meds regularly. And uh, other if you don't take them, you cough. Um, but... <laughs> Guineas has this unnamed anime disease and Ina seems to be the one who usually reminds him to take it. And her watch is probably what beeps and reminds her to remind him to take it. Um, I don't know why Guineas doesn't have the watch, but whatever. Um, Now Shiro has the watch and we get scenes throughout this episode of him like waiting out in the jungle, trying to find the Zaku, the watch beeping and him being like, what the hell? Why isn't there an alarm going off? Shut up, watch. Yeah. <laughs> so again, the show never says like that's what the watch is, but we as viewers, I think, can easily piece that together when we finally see the scene of like, oh, it's time to take your anime medication for your anime disease. So yeah, that's that's the kind of overall synopsis here. I know I did my big digression that I wanted to do, which is just about the anime sexualization of young girls, which again, I will have far more thoughts on this when we get to Evangelion, but um yeah, yeah I don't, I, I, I'm going to uh, throw it to you. <laughs> okay, I thank you, because I have a bunch of, you know, more ranting that I have to do. Um, so thank you. This episode two, for me, is really interesting because it, this is, this is where, like, I think 08 starts to really distinguish itself from the UC stuff in terms of, like, not only... You know, obviously it's it's setting, um, but also it's substance in the way that the, the series is actually constructed. What's interesting about um, this episode for me is that uh, things seem to move really fast. Like, you know, they get onto Earth and then they're just like, all of a sudden they're like fighting. Yeah, um, beauty of OVAs, baby. Although this yeah. show will still have things that feel more like filler than sometimes you get with OVAs. But never quite to the extent of like, oh, this entire episode is just about some complete nonsense. Like, I mean, I think the most infamous is the Dragon Ball episode where Goku learns how to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, we never get anything that bad. But the Dragon Ball series famed for its concise plotting yeah, and, you know, in brevity. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think aside from, you know, the fact that it's an OVA, I think there's a really intentional aspect of how the pacing is done to convey a sense of, like, rapidity and to create an overall, like, sense of some sort of disorientation and confusion uh, for the viewer where, like, oh, all of a sudden, like, a battle's happening. Like, go out there and fight. And everyone's like, oh, okay, I guess we have to go and fight now. We're not even really, like, oriented to this new base that we're inhabiting. We don't know each other. And, like, or even what the combat situation is out here. Like, none of this stuff is, like, there's no exposition for us or for the character that, like, you know, flushes all this out. It's just like, okay, go fight now. And I think that's important because, like, it's already kind of conveying for the viewer the kind of world that Oath is envisioning where these individuals are like more of just cogs in the machine. Like this war is happening and it's this huge, massive thing. 
that is sweeping people along and people are being, you know, swept along in this current and by these systems. So like, oh, like battles happen and characters just like have to fight. But, you know, they're not really... There's a sense of just like, oh, it's spontaneous. That also ties into another really interesting thing about 08 that we see here, which is like, especially compared to the other UC stuff, there is a much, much, much greater focus on like small scale and granular detail of combat. Like for lack of a better word, we could say it's a more like realistic or naturalistic um, like depiction of combat. This also carries over to like the presentation of day-to-day life, but combat specifically is where OAth really sets itself apart from UC. So a lot of time is given to the setting. Um, we see the Gundams like it, the Gundams are presented having to navigate through the jungle. We have a new type of combat. We haven't seen night combat, you know, in a jungle on the ground. There's all of a sudden, like, recon is a thing. So, like, Elidor and uh, Michelle are, like, essentially just the recon arm of the team, which, if you know the UC stuff, like, they absolutely do not do recon, where they're, like, going out and being, like, oh, let me, you know, use, like, radar and or whatever, you know, like vibration analysis in the ground to see where the enemy units are so we can like meticulously plan out our positioning there's like you know things as small as like oh don't turn on your lights or turn off your lights because the enemies are near or like cut your radio so your communications can't be intercepted this is like a huge part of the series for me one of the things that is actually that i like a lot and like carries through for pretty much it is present in like every episode more or less that that we're going to watch yeah i mean like in some degrees so some of this is both like what i know of some of the other universal century but also like what i know of iron-blooded orphans as well and then like looking at 08th MS team, like I enjoy a lot of the battles in 08th MS team and I enjoy them because they touch more on the part of my brain that is excited about like this play that you just found that I could do in this like tactics RPG or something like this, like, okay, I'm sending this character out to like lessen my fog of war so I can see what enemies are over there. Like, I know they're not my strongest character, but they can move quickly and get out of the way. Like maybe they're a a Pegasus and like fire emblem or whatever. And so like, I'm doing like this to try and like view more of the field. I have these characters who can like move quickly and get around to do pincer attacks. I have these characters who can like be the tank and push forward. I have these other characters who can attack from afar so I can have them in the background. And it's all about like, how are people actually moving around on the field and how am I utilizing different people's abilities to like create this cohesive team that is addressing the like actual rules of large scale combat. Um, And that is like, what is exciting about it? Like both of us, I think have a certain fondness for like tactical games, you know, strategy games, things like that. And I feel like 08 MS team scratches that more than 
like what Iron Blooded Orphans has and what I think a lot of Gundam has, which is a little bit more of like, I only have limited understanding of wrestling terminology that exists from me being online in spaces where people know <laughs> wrestling things. But like a lot of other fights are about like, what is the like actual staging? Like what's the rivalry that exists and how are you pairing these two characters off? And it's not really about the physical space and how people are moving through it, but rather like, Oh, there's this main conflict happening where someone needs to be saved, but then the rivals coming in and stopping the hero from being able to get to that or, and it's like, it's more about interpersonal things and how that's being played with in terms of like a fight scenario or a combat scenario, which I also enjoy. Like that's when we do a lot of tabletop role playing, I'm not doing here's like, let's draw out a grid and blah, blah, blah. Especially because I just find that kind of combat really tedious when you're actually having to do all of the math yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah, roll for, you know, do you climb the wall? Like, roll yeah. dexterity. And like... I'm like, oh, sorry, you can't get to them because you can only move six spaces right now and it is seven spaces and like you could take another action, but then you wouldn't be able to do this attack, but you could do. And like, I enjoy that at that level of granularity for combat when it is a computer doing all the math and just presenting the options to me. I, as a GM don't want to do that math and present the options. (laughs) Yeah. When you're playing like Baldur's Gate and it's just like, oh, my guy swung his sword, like, five times and only hit them once. Like, oh, okay. As long as this is, like, compressed and I don't, like, have to do the math, it's not as galling. Yeah. Um, But, like, I... Especially because so much of anime is that form that is, like, what we do when we roleplay, which I enjoy, but it it is really fun for me to see this other side that is more about, like, what are actual military tactics? What are the actual positioning of these things like these troops or these like Gundams within the forest. And we definitely get a little bit of like, and now here a character drama is going to get introduced, but I feel like some of the appeal of, of 08 MS team is that it leans more towards something like, you know, battle tech in terms of how it's portraying combat versus like super robot Tyson. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to like take that further just so it's not like i i enjoy this because it's like different and because it's interesting to me and i i do think it's like the way that it's done in 08th not that i'm some sort of like battle tactics expert or whatever um, but it, it feels really detailed and convincing but i also think that it it also ties into this bigger thing that the series is doing which is it really seems to be attempting this more like again quote-unquote naturalistic like depiction of war and like the people's lives under it and how people like part of what the the emphasis on tactics like serves to do is to bring out more the fact of people being um, instrumentalized like people are these like cogs in a team by necessity for like a war effort it's not it people have to like people are used and have to be used um and it's so it's going into all this detail of like this is how all these people are being used and you know in the final instance it's it's creating this bigger picture of like 
yes, like this naturalistic depiction of, of war, but also like here's this more, in a certain way, like this colder presentation of like how people really are, you know, reduced or instrumentalized, like in the course of a war, as opposed to like some of the universal century stuff where it's like, oh yeah, and now Amuro goes out and just like blows everyone away because he's like a new type, you know, and he's unstoppable. And tactics don't matter because Amuro is like, you know, is this deus ex machina who like has godlike power, which it really colors the the series in a different way. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy, I think for the similar ways and some of it is less my direct understanding of what Gundam in general does, but just anime in general of like, I feel like this is just a, a less common form of handling this and that it does seem to, it, it gives me a clearer sense of like, these are the protagonists of the story, not because they are necessarily the, the protagonists of the overarching story of Gundam, but because we have chosen to focus in on this like small platoon who's doing a ground war that like possibly doesn't even really matter that much because Amuro is just going to destroy everything anyway. And like, you know, you don't need to know what happens here in order to see how the one year war resolves. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And we're choosing to do it to show you this, not because it is, I think ever going to be shown as being key to any sort of victory in this way. It is like different than rogue one that I forget if it was on a recording that survived or not, but I don't think, like, I don't think it did. <laughs> um, Lost but time. like, yeah, you know, Oh, eight MS team kind of being the the rogue one of Gundam of like let us look at this ragtag group that are you know none of them are Jedi's they are not the big heroes who are getting an award from Leia at the end of A New Hope they are the people who are doing these things like in the background and are just continuing to fight this war except like minor spoilers for 08 MS team Rogue One is like and even though like it doesn't go well for them they do get the information that's crucial for a new hope to happen and so like this is the important role that they served for the story even though they go unremembered 08 MS team like the war is not in any way won because of their actions that's not what the series is about so Sorry for like minor spoilers there. That's not going to be a reveal at the end. <laughs> no, that's all right. I mean, if you like, based on Gundam seventy nine, like we already know w- why, like how and by whom the war is won, and yeah. like it has very little to do with like what happens on Earth. There's no part where it's like, and then the 08th MS team get this crucial piece of information, and then we see a scene where someone hands it to Shiro, being like, "Here." This is the information that you need to take down the, you know, death Zaku. <laughs> yeah, and then Amuro flies into the like into the fortress and shoots it in its weak point because yeah. they found out about the weak point. <laughs> no, this is I think very explicitly about like here's these again like the combat here seems to be playing into it of like these are these people who are just being instrumentalized towards a war where their actions don't even necessarily fully matter for the like grand scheme of this war 
And yet the battle still happens and they are still engaged with in it. And there are still other things that are happening within it that are like interesting to explore. Even if it is not, this is how the war was won. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this as we like continue to watch through. I think my, my big thing just to like push back, throw back to you, keep letting you talk for a while. One of the big things that comes up with 08th MS team, I think, is the ground Gundam and mm. how much the ground Gundam kind of sucks compared to like other Gundam in terms of like things that are called Gundam within Gundam. <laughs> um, the, the ground Gundam is kind of like there's almost this, almost this vibe to the ground Gundam of like, are they just calling it a ground Gundam to make these like poor people feel better about their horrible <laughs> state in life <laughs> that like they are like fighting this like meaningless battle so let's just like tell them the thing that we're giving them that isn't actually a Gundam that it's a Gundam <laughs> yeah what's what's interesting is like this is almost um, this is one of the aspects of the series that like when I was watching it I was like hmm that actually seems to like clash with what's going on in First Gundam because a big plot point in First Gundam is like the Gundam that Amuro gets and like and pilots is like a a, a very very new thing, um, and it's not really like shown in that series. I, I I basically I think like I definitely think this is an invention of 08th because like ground Gundam is never implied, at least as I recall, is never like implied shown or implied to exist in Gundam seventy nine. And, like, the Gundam is, like, very much a unique thing of which there are, like, very few. So... Yeah, I mean, the the real answer here is probably that they're making something called 08th MS Team where they're going to have an opportunity to make new robots and they want to sell Gunpla of them and they want some of those Gunpla to have the actual word Gundam on them. That's, like, honestly probably the real answer of why these are called Gundam. Yeah, but, and I'm okay with that being the <laughs> yeah, real answer. It it is also still funny, especially I think like the first two episodes here. I maybe it's in episode two where they mention it. For a while, they seem to like intentionally not call them Gundam, and they call them just like mobile suits or something. Um, and then it's like because it is MS Team, which is Mobile Suit Team. So like we get that very early on, but it's like partway through the series where you're like, oh, they start calling them Ground Gundams, <laughs> and yeah, I. Like, again, the the answer is probably just it's to market, like, Gunpla, but um, it's also, it's just a weird thing in, yeah, I don't know if you have any specific thoughts about, like, despite that final answer, how you're <laughs> feeling about them calling these Gundams, um, but. I, I wish I had, like, something better to say. I do think there's a whole thing about, like the Gundam as such, like within the the world of Gundam, in our in our, you know, long lost recording, you're talking about how this like factors into Iron Blooded Orphans. And that's definitely there is like a mythos surrounding like the Gundam its itself, like that specific model um within the like fiction of Gundam that is really interesting. But I don't know if I don't know if we should get into all that right here. 
because um, the ground Gundam is like it is still even if I try and make it fit into that, it just like doesn't. So yeah, I'm okay I with mean, it being like you know, they made a Gundam series like they had to have some sort of Gundam in it, and they couldn't make it work without being like doing this. Yeah, I mean, this time I was gonna wait to to bring up my thing about like Iron Blooded Orphans when we got to episode six, um, but. I think it's fine to mention here that like, so one of the, the reasons why, you know, I kind of got interested into mecha anime, but then I ended up when I first, you know, I had my like first introduction to it. And then as I was getting deeper into it, I ended up focusing in particular on, on mecha stuff that is about like, especially arcane or like these weird magical mech stuff. I love when the mecha is like some strange thing that is like uh, in some way beyond like immediate human understanding or when there are at least some that exist that are like that. So, you know, when we get to Evangelion, we'll talk about that within Evangelion. There's stuff going on within Evangelion where like they are are weird body horror mechs in some ways. It's a very different vibe, but Magic Knight Ray Earth also has these magical mechs that are, I mentioned them earlier, they're called rune gods, and they're like these ancient beings that you pilot as mechs. And I, I love that shit, and I think one of my favorite versions that I've ever seen of it is actually what happens in Iron-Blooded Orphans, which is there are mecha that people are piloting, but then whenever there is a Gundam, it is specifically something that existed from a previous war that existed, like, at least a thousand years ago. I forget what the actual number is. And there are fan readings of, like, what they are talking about is, in fact, like, Universal Century Gundam. But what's happening is that they're digging up these old machines and... Those old machines are, like, super-powered, seem to have a weird entity within them. Um, Like, the main character of Iron-Blooded Orphan will often talk to his Gundam that seems to respond to him. And that it is, like, that that power is not just something... If it is something that is, like, man-made, which is more of the case in Evangelion, although not entirely, it is still, like, playing with things that are beyond current understanding... Or in some cases are, like, very explicitly, like, this is some ancient being that, like, exists beyond us. And I just, I love that shit, and we'll get into it when we get to, like, Magic Knight, Ray Earth, and some of the other stuff where where that becomes a more key theme. Um, But I think that was one of the reasons why, I know that this comes up sometimes with, like, even Universal Century Gundam, but I like it when it's, like, made really explicit. Or the other option is I just want what, 08 ms team has which is like no it's like literally a machine like sand gets in the gears it like you have to like do maintenance on it you have to play a video game where it's all about like how do i fine-tune these parts like i would fine-tune a car in a racing game (laughs) except then i go like shoot someone with it you know i want like armored core or i want uh the daemon ex machina (laughs) like so i want those two extremes (laughs) Yes, and by the way, since since you brought it up, and you really you really did it this time, Armored Core, like, it's like total, very very underrated series, very underrated. I was super into uh, Armored Core for Answer. Uh, it's a huge part 
of my mecha fandom. It's basically like Dark Souls with mechs. I don't know why people don't like this game, but it should still be being made. And like, if you have the Xbox 360 or whatever, try and get a copy because it's freaking sweet. But I'm right there with you. I still have not fully forgiven... When I was in middle school, I lent my copy of Armored Core 2 to a friend, and when he returned it to me, the disc was scratched to absolute shit and would not play. And I still have never, like, I don't even talk to that kid anymore, but I still haven't forgiven him for destroying my Armored Core 2 disc. If you're listening... I loved Armored Core 2. It was one of my favorite games on hey, PS2. Kid, if you're listening, we're coming for you. Yeah. We um, did kind of rebond over both playing final fantasy 10 i didn't forgive him but like we were friends again for a little while because we played final fantasy 10 and we also played a bunch of blitzball and we would we would play blitzball and like had some weird way we were playing against each other even though i don't think it was like it wasn't (laughs) actually versus we were like comparing scores and things i forget exactly how it worked we did this with pokemon 2 when i was a kid like i always found weird ways to create like non-direct competitive where it was like oh can you defeat the elite four with only one pokemon what's the lowest level that you can do that was a, a challenge we did i i won with a mewtwo i was the like best at it that's my my yeah, proud your your my your proud elementary mewtwo school that you moment. catch at level yeah. like 80 or whatever <laughs> But anyway, yeah, it was Blitzball's great. Let's get maybe let's move on to episode three. <laughs> if you okay. hate Blitzball, <clears throat> fuck you. It was yeah. great. Yeah, stop listening immediately. Um <laughs> okay, epi- Episode three. Unless episode you have three. more to say, but I think we can move on. We're like over an hour and a half in. <laughs> yeah, I will just say, like, if you're listening and you're you think that the stuff about like the mythos around the Gundam is cool. Um, I would definitely recommend MSG Victory, um, in which like they're really playing with this a lot as like one of the main themes of at least the early part of the series. This like idea of or the mythos surrounding the Gundam. Um, okay, so episode episode three, they um, the Oath team is tasked with like overcoming this this Xeon entrenchment. Um, they're high up on a cliff overlooking this village, they're, uh, which they're also, they've conquered and they're controlling. And it's just like totally unassailable. They have these pillboxes and, and um, mounted guns and, and whatnot. So Shiro uh, devises a pincer attack plan where he's going to go around using the route that he discovered in the last episode through the waterfall, which flows into a river and he's going to use this river to attack the, um, from behind of the entrenchment. While he's on the way, uh, he's captured by gorillas, of which Kiki is, we learned this is Kiki's group. He's brought to, to the village in question, uh, where the gorillas are based out of. Um, and he meets with the leader, uh, who we learn after some confusion, uh, we learn is Kiki's father. Uh, and eventually convinces the guerrilla leader to release him so he can liberate the village uh, in exchange for like basically looting rights for all of the guerrillas over the, the spoils of war. 
Um, in the meantime, like the rest of the team is trying to mount this pincer attack without Shiro and is on the verge of more or less being wiped out. And then Shiro swoops in at the end, uh, at the last second, um, successfully pulls off the pincer attack, and they win the battle and kind of overrun the the entrenchment and reconquer the village. So I know, uh, again, I know you have some thoughts on this. Uh, I'll let you take first crack at it. Yeah, I mean, I already brought up the, like, this is where we get that moment of, um, so when Shiro's going through the waterfall, that's when, like, Kiki and some of the other guerrilla soldiers basically ambush him and, and take over his ground gun him and whatever. This is where there's that, like, weird exchange of, in some ways it is almost going okay, where, like, Kiki rightfully is just, like, you know, Shiro's like, you're just a kid. And then Kiki's like, then why the fuck were you being a creep and leering at me? Um, which is like, okay, like, this all... Yeah, why the fuck were you doing that, Shiro? Like, yeah, I know it was kind of an accident, but it was still kind of weird and creepy. And then this is where I'm, like, most disappointed in the... Other than just, like, them inviting me as a viewer to leer at this, which also just... Like, I could read this scene so much better if it wasn't for episode two was just, like, expecting me to be on Shiro's side of, like, ooh, naked girl. But then Shiro being like... Oh, I just like couldn't look away or whatever because you were so pretty. And then she's like blush and then throughout the rest of the series is going to have a crush on Shiro and it's just like okay, this part like sucks. This is this I actually in some ways almost hate more than the initial part, which also just sucks for like me leering at, but like if you didn't if you didn't have the framing of I'm supposed to leer at Kiki getting out of the water, but you had the Shiro sees her naked, she fires at him, then it's like, why are you being a creep? Blah, blah, blah. blah. And you like dropped the, and then Kiki gets a crush on him because he said that she was pretty and that's why he was staring. Like, it's those two parts. The I'm expected to leer at Kiki, and then I'm expected to believe that Kiki would get a crush on Shiro for being like, oh, you're pretty, that's why I was being creepy. Neither of which, like, makes sense to me as a female viewer. <laughs> yeah. Which is also interesting to me because this is an OVA, and OVAs, they have to get their tits in. They gotta get the anime titty for you. <laughs> and the way that it appears in this episode, well, one is that I think every ED, like every ending has a part where, so the ending is like Shiro reading and then people are walking in front of the camera. Um, and then eventually like Shiro realizes someone's filming him and throws his book at it or whatever. Um, and the like tips down, but, uh, there's a part where I think it's Elador. I, you, it's kind of hard to tell, but like walks in front holding open like a nudie magazine. So that's like your one bit, every single episode, you get that little bit of, of anime, like nudity, but you also get this one of like, oh, there are some like images that seem like they're clipped from some magazine or that are like pinups or something. And they're hanging up in the tank where Elador is. I think it's specifically over where Elador is and not where Michelle is. Mm -hmm. And like, this is a thing of like, if you are going to say like, this is an OVA and so we have to get some titty in, like this still makes sense to me in terms of like, this is a thing military guys do. And it's not that it's like great. But it feels realistic and it also it feels more like it's just doing some fan service in a way that isn't like outright 
creepy or like messing with my otherwise enjoyment of a lot of these characters, which includes Kiki. Um, even though my like two favorite are Karen and Ina, like I also like Kiki a lot as a character, you know, it gives me strong, like kid from Colonel Cross vibes. She's cool. And like, I just, I hate what they do with the character when they're trying to then bring in the fan service. And I wish they just stuck more to like, here's this nudie mag that's hanging up in the tank. And then it like, returns as a funny bit when the uh, gorillas are looting and they go into Elidor's tank and like steal the magazine, the like photos being like, Ooh, nudie pictures. And it's like, okay, that's like that bit works for me. If you're going to do fan service, I'm okay with that. Like whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's still like a sexualization of women happening, but like this, this, fits in a way that feels appropriate to the setting and that is not like fucking with these characters that I otherwise enjoy and like doing gross things with them. So that's my, that's probably my final feeling. I'm going to like really have about, especially the sexualization of women in this series, but I just want to like put that down here too. I'll get in a little bit more with Karen when we get there. Cause mm-hmm. that also, it sucks when we get there. The other piece is that I just really like the underwater fight the battle that we see here. So like when Shiro is going to do the pincer attack, he's going through the river and then like popping up and going back down. And then there's a part where an enemy Zaku goes into the water to try and fight him. And we actually like get a fight underwater. And I'm like, I would, I would love like a mecha series, like a Gundam series. That's like submarine combat, (laughs) but with like mecha where it's just like a bunch of like, what does it mean to regularly do fights like this underwater? I feel like that would just be, I enjoy those like weird. Again, I, I like sometimes when it's the weird minutia of machines and it, we get a little bit of what is the combat underwater with these things. And like, part of me is like, I would love to see more of that. Even though we also do get a weird bit of like Kiki's crotch going into Shiro's face because as he's moving around, she's also in the cockpit and like bouncing around, especially because the other two shots that we get, which is like her bonking him with her head and then um, her bonking him with her feet are like, that's fine, but they just have to start it with like the crotch one. So again, I'm done now. I'm done. But I, I agree with you though. The crotch one is like, there are there are these moments with Kiki where like so I I have like a larger thesis about how like the sexuality is presented in 08th and what I think it's doing that I was planning to discuss like around episode five and I think I still will do that but like there are moments where it's just like they're just like this is just dumb. You know, like, oh, like, Kiki's crotch goes in Shira's face. Like, ha, ha, ha. Like, that's not, you know. I, again, like, I think the series is have is doing some, is presenting sexuality in a way that is real, that is somewhat complex. But, like, that doesn't account for, like, I think these moments are just, like, stupid and disappointing and, like, not accounted for by by like some of the other stuff that's happening that is like in my eyes kind of interesting Um, yeah it it feel especially in this series it feels so clearly like it is just fan service which 
I think in a previous episode I briefly referred to um, and forgot what the like otaku name for it was. It's fan service. But like that's it's just fan service here. And often for me, fan service just detracts from like you're doing other interesting themes and there are some series where it gets more muddled and this is where like we'll talk about it in Evangelion because I think Evangelion is on one hand doing fan service and it's just shitty fan service and on the other hand is actually trying to explore sexuality in more like deep and meaningful ways than I feel like 08th MS team is and that weird muddling of those two things like the teasing out feels valuable to me whereas Whenever it comes up in 08th MS team, it kind of just feels like, oh, it's an OVA, so we can put boobs in it. And so we're going to put boobs in it, and we're going to do it around Kiki for some reason, even though there are literally two other attractive women who are, are not underage that you could do it with. And it would still suck. I love Karen and Ina. Like, please don't do it to them either. But also, at least it's not like a someone who's canonically 14 or whatever the fuck. So, yeah. Um, womp <laughs> I, I think it's interesting how like how that you're reading the the like nudie mag I- images for like a better term um, as fan service because for me I actually think that is part of something that more interesting that's happening around like sexuality and exploring having a, a kind of bleak presentation of like what sexuality is and how that gets instrumentalized. And how it exists, like within a, a like a warfare combat situation, which like I'll get to later. I yeah, think... I mean, I I do like it more because it feels more fitting and realistic. I I think if that was the direction that they were going with, one, I would just want them to like cut it out with Kiki. Yeah, and two, they'll like actually explore that deeper and to to show that in more meaningful ways than. I think the series really does. It's also, it's been a little bit since I've watched the second half, but I feel like we're going to probably talk about this less with the second half. I don't remember it being quite as creepy, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see as we go. But like, that's the other thing. Like if this, if they developed like the nudie mag thing way more in episode seven through 12, I would be far more like, yes, I see. I agree with you. They're doing something interesting here. Whereas my read on it is that it's just fan service or that it's like, only just beginning to say oh how do we tie this in but stopping at the level of just like this is a a realistic thing about the way that sexuality is used as a part of war and not let's say deeper something deeper about that specifically yeah i think it's a small piece of like i think it's a very small piece of like a larger thing that's happening just being like oh they have like nudie mags up like in the tank and around i don't think it does like that in of itself does a lot of this work but i think it like contributes to it in a way that like makes sense to me and hopefully um i can make a case for this like when we get to episode five the other thing about shiro i was going to bring this up in episode two uh i do think it's like it's a we can bring it up now too Shiro being the commander is an interesting thing to me. Question for you. How old do you think Shiro is supposed to be in this series? Um, So my read on it is like, so my, my, 
me watching this and my like reaction to just him as a, a character and like reality is like, oh, like 21 or 22, but also I know anime rules where everyone is either a teen or like 30 or 40. Mm-hmm. So like probably like 18 or 19 would be my guess because anime rules, but definitely like enough of an age range where it's still a little weird to me with like the Kiki stuff. It's, it's less weird to me that Kiki would have a crush on him. What's weird is just the way that the, the series handles Kiki and like her getting to that point. So. Yeah. And I'm not like barking up the tree of like, Oh, see, like Shiro's a teenager also. So it's okay. I'm just like, I think for me, like understanding the character of Shiro, so I, well, I also perceive him as being like <clears throat> 18. And I looked it up. Shiro is 23. Oh God. Okay. Um, so that is, yeah, that is definitely um, even more creepy. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you looked it up. Cause that does change. Like my reading of him as a character like even aside from from this stuff but uh also kiki is according to the the wiki 17 which i'm not sure i f- like yeah it's weird well, i feel like kiki is younger than that like my read on her but i guess that makes it slightly less creepy but it's still a little creepy well we can like anyway so, yeah we can throw that out there and be like you know that's something to consider in light of our like prior discussion. I don't think, I think that like, even if there is like factual grounding for those ages, I still think that like all of the points that, that we have made so far about her, like being presented at least seeming like underage. Like even 17 is underage. Yes. Like it's it's underage. Like that's like high school age. That's still weird. It's yeah. not quite what I was thinking of like 14, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's still like, you know, I don't think that invalidates any of our points. Although like, Karen's 26. God bless Karen. Wow. I'm just looking up ages now. Um, <laughs> I definitely thought Karen was like 29 or 30 or something. Yeah, um, I I thought Karen wasn't was like in her 30s, but um, she talks. They talk about how she had a husband. I guess twenty six. You could have a husband. Husband. I was. I'm married out of undergrad. So. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, well, okay. So that's you know. And Ina is twenty. So my shipping of Karen and Ina, six years. It's still a bit of a difference, but. It's they're the, they're in their twenties. Yeah. Right. At least one of them isn't seventeen. Yeah. Um, so you know. Okay. Like. Well, that's good context to have. The thing with Shiro, again, you know, I'm kind of circling around this point I'm trying to make, which is like he he's very he's very young and in one way he's like he's straddling this line between like this young boy protagonist, this Amuro archetype, and also um in this context he's he's the leader of the team, which I think is a tension like for him that we see in the series. And attention that is like in some ways definitional, where he is he is tasked with this role. Um, he feels that he has to embody it, 
but in some ways, like it is, it is not. I don't want to say ill-fitting, but like beyond his years, because he's still just like a young man or like a boy or whatever, and he's like actually leading a combat unit with a bunch of people aside from Michelle, who are older than him. So I think that that's just like a note that I want to make on his character that like his youth and then also this tension between like his youth and this responsibility is, is seems to be significant in his character arc for me. Yeah. Also for context, I just, while I'm at it, I quickly looked up um, Sanders is 29. Elador is 24, which is one year older than Shiro. And then Michelle is 18, which I definitely buy. Michelle is 18. He, for sure. Is kind of annoying, but in this way that I can sympathize because, like, people are just annoying when they're 18. I'm sure I was very annoying when I was 18, so. I'm certain of it. That I, that I was, not that you were. Yeah. But, yeah, I believe you. Yeah, I don't know if you have any final thoughts or else I can get into episode four. Let's, let's do it, you know. We're two hours in, and uh, we still have three more episodes, so, you know, we're, we're right on track. Yeah. So, episode four, we, we finally get to what we've been joking about this entire time, which is the, like, this is where the drama around Shinigami Sanders becomes, like, pointed and comes to a head. Previous to this, the nickname came up a few times. We get a few internal monologues from, or not even really monologues, but, like, asides from Sanders being like, oh, is you know, Shiro going to be able to help me turn my luck as like Shinigami Sanders. And we get like people whispering about it in previous episodes. But uh, here it starts out with basically some people from another team being like, hey, you're cursed. You're Sanders the Reaper, blah, blah, blah. And we get the specific detail of it's the third battle with a new team. So the like third time that he's going into battle with a team, that is when everybody but he dies and so there's this whole thing of like you know a fight breaks out it's like a fist fight between sanders and this other person who's insulting him shiro comes to kind of break it up and also to kind of just back up sanders um i do just like the like shiro sanders you know being like loyal having each other's backs again and again throughout the series um it's just kind of a nice like i like that anime buds uh, <laughs> dynamic but of course the rest of this episode is going to be the third battle that they do as the 08th ms team and part of the the core question here being is the curse going to play out or is it going to be broken uh there are 12 episodes and of course everybody here except sanders dies and then the other 12 episodes are just all about sanders and his new team just um, wandering <laughs> wandering through the jungle like in yeah. despair so, you know, episode five, six, and seven is his new team. His new team dies in episode seven. Then uh, eight, nine, and ten, his new team. New team dies in episode ten. And then we get 11, 12, and, you know, we never actually get the resolution. That's the whole thing. Yeah, there's um, a huge no. cliffhanger at the end of episode 12 where it's like, yeah. is this team going to die again? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, in, in fact, they, of course, survive. Um, so, but th- this battle is like one of the most tense fights that have happened up until this point. Um, I forget if we really mentioned it last episode, but we like when we're getting shots of 
um, or I think it was even episode two where it's first mentioned, we get like these discussions happening with Ina and her brother about this experimental weapon that he's working on. And here's where we actually see it. It's this thing called the Apsilis. It is this, like, the part that I find funniest about it is like this weird orb, giant orb thing. <laughs> but it still has, like, a mech head. A Zaku just like, head. Yeah. yeah, like a Zaku head, like, in the middle of, like, this giant orb. <laughs> With, like, lots of greebles and everything coming off of it. Um, I G- Genius is like, look, yeah. <laughs> I'm a scientist, not a designer. Um, feel free to let me know what you think about the overall design of the Absolus. Uh, we are going to see another version of it that I think is a little bit cooler. This one's kind of just goofy to me, but, um, (laughs) so this is where, you know, this is the, the experimental weapon that Guineas has been working on. And Ina is of course the test pilot. It is also of course, within the context of Gundam 79, the exact kind of experimental weapon that some genius would be building and then just gets destroyed in a single episode by Shiro Amada. Uh, but instead here, we're going to get multiple episodes with the, the Opsilus. So uh, the build up to this battle is tense. Like I just, I enjoy a lot of the almost horror elements that are being brought up where like, we have that tank that feels the vibrations and Elador being like, yo, like I'm picking stuff up and it's like, this is weird and kind of scary. And we like, I feel like the, I don't know if there is a thunderstorm. I don't know if you remember. It has a, there's a thunderstorm happening vibe, even if yeah, there isn't a thunderstorm. There's like a storm like, feel yeah. about it. And like, there's also like the audio and the episode is like the, the audio of the Absalus like flying is, it, it's got this, like, you know, horror type, like... Like, yeah, unnerving, vibe, like, weird, yeah. humming, buzzing, kind of hard-to-play sound. Um, I do kind of enjoy this conceit of O8th MS Team, of, like, here's something that would probably be so handily defeated by Shiro Amada. and yet, Amaro. Yeah, or yeah, by Amaro, but here we're going to have Shiro Amada and, like, the 08th MS team uh, repeatedly facing off against it, and it's, like, this huge terrifying thing because, you know, compared to Amaro in the Gundam, like, this is probably nothing, but for most soldiers, this is actually an incredibly terrifying thing to have to encounter. Yeah, like an actual doomsday weapon that yeah. you stand no chance of fighting against. So, you know, there's a a large fight that plays out and eventually, so Sanders actually manages to get a hit in using a a beam saber and like eventually the Absolus and Ina within it flees. It takes enough damage. Um, They're able to kind of, they're able to like actually strike a blow on it in a way that is, I think, like unnerving for both Ina and also just like what the Absolus is supposed to be. And also it's this accidental encounter. It's not like we're going to fly this in and attack this MS, like this mobile suit team. It's specifically like, oh, the initial flight test goes wrong and enters into to Federation space. And that's mm-hmm. why this whole thing happens. We also get interspersed throughout this leading up to this battle, you know, before Ina is actually piloting this, the scenes of Ina and her brother Guineas doing just like noble shit at a dance, you know, like the stuff that nobles do at a dance. We're just getting some of that here. The big thing too is also this rivalry. So I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but Ina and Guineas, their last name is Sahalin, or it's sometimes localized with a K, which is like the actual normal romanization of the Russian island that this name comes from. But 
their family has this rivalry with this brash Sion officer named Yuri, I forget his last name, who's kind of an asshole. I think in the Phantoms sometimes gets shipped with Gineas, which is just one of those, like, I guess you ship rivals sometimes. Like, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm actually getting sexual tension here, but okay. And, like, he's hitting on Ina. Uh, Yuri hits on Ina throughout this. Um, yeah, and then, you know the whole build up to the fight. So I kind of forgot like when things got interspersed between these episodes, between the, the plot of the OHMS MS team, like as a, a team, not as the show. And then like Ina as this test pilot and her brother. Um, so I kind of often the Ina stuff feels more secondary. It's a lot less of the, the screen time. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of just thrown it to the end of synopses here, but um it's a little bit more interspersed in the actual, the actual show. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have like a lot of thoughts here. I mean, I'm looking, we have significantly less notes here than previous episodes. Um, my biggest thing is like when I first watched this and I saw these scenes of like, Oh, here's Ina and Guineas. They're going to this dance with a bunch of like Xeon nobles. Uh, they put the butch in a dress. Ina's wearing a dress here. I love any time you put the butch in a dress. It's my favorite trope. Every time I wear a dress, I'm like, ha, put the butch in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like, we don't get as much of this as I would like. Uh, there's a version of this show where we get like fully fleshed out, like nobility drama happening with Ina and Guineas, and then we get the full on, like, here's the ground, like, people fighting in the the muck and the dirt with the 08th MS team, and I wish that both of those sides were given a little bit more equal time, in part because I just really love Ina as a character, um, but also because the way that it currently exists, I feel like the show is pointing at, oh, look at this, like, contrast between, you know, it's even remarked here, that there's air conditioning in this like Xeon lab where they're having this dance or whatever, which like is repeatedly remarked on that they don't have air conditioning at the base where the, the Federation forces are. But like, I feel like some of it is just like, Oh, look at the differences between these two sides. And it doesn't actually give me that fleshed out. Like I'm also currently rewatching Utena and Utena has a bunch of nobles at a dance shit and I love it. So like, <laughs> I, I, I wish there was more is, is my like real thing here. And I wish that they, they fleshed out those differences. So it became more meaningful and not, it, it sometimes feels a little bit more just like service level here of like, Oh look, and here's Zeon and their air conditioned comfort having a dance and not like, let's actually explore what that means further. Um, but yeah, maybe I you disagree. <laughs> it no, I mean, if you, I I'm pleased to to let you know that there is. I, I'm going to enjoy Gundam seventy nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a little bit more. No, not a little bit. A lot more of the like <laughs> nobility, like intrigue, you know, family rivalry shit and Gundam 79 that's that's like a big part of it and you see a lot more Xeon and there's also some like you know nobility just like doing nobles shit and double Zeta as well so yeah you know there's 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 more out there for you 
so I'm, for my take on this, I want to briefly go and, you know, as I am like pathologically committed to doing, I would want to note another UC trope that is like. This is your here. gender happens. <laughs> yeah, it is. Although I will note, I will note again, or also that the one note that we had for episode four that was the same was the gender happening note, um, <laughs> which I know uh, we'll, we'll get to in a second. But uh, yeah, so um, Genius and Ina, again, 08th here is like very explicitly recalling this Gundam trope of like young women being used by men. It, it kind of happens in different configurations in again the, the really no, no, um, notable one is Shar and Lala in Gundam 79 but it also comes up again in Shar's counterattack uh, which is like a, a really um, interesting like development of this in its own right but here it's it's like cast into the brother and sister mold so uh, again like you know this is significant and i do want to do Ina justice by just taking a moment to like really look at her character and open up like an analysis which you know will be built on i'm sure as we go but you know what are we thinking about Ina's character because for me, you know, we've talked about Shiro already, kind of the elements of his character. Uh, Aina is a very interesting one for me. Um, we get some, in, I believe it's in episode four, um, where she's reflecting on like the the Absolus and her piloting of it. She's considering how like she says something to the effect of like, "Oh, it's you know, I know that like this machine is going to kill." like many 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 people but you know i guess it's okay or like it's justified because it will finally bring peace um she also has a comment i believe it's in episode two where she's like oh yeah i saw uh giren zabi's speech when she's talking to Ginia, she's like i saw giren zabi's speech and it's so good to know that you know i'm so like inspired by this and it's good to know that we're going to be victorious. So she has these elements of like, you know, she's a reflection of Shiro in a lot of ways in the sense of like, I think she is committed to like, in her own right, to like winning this war for Zeon. Um, because on some level, she thinks that like, Zeon should win. And the peace that Zeon winning would bring is like something desirable. Um, and for that reason, like, she's willing to that, that that is part of her willingness to like go out into combat pilot this death machine and you know do everything that that entails um but there's also this humanity to her character um which like she's on the other end of this shiro aina connection where she you know for her part is willing to cast aside all of that for this deeper human connection that she maybe finds with Shiro. Um, and then also, obviously, her care for her brother, which, you know, 
we get the sense that he's exploiting her. So maybe this is like, you know, a more one-sided relationship. But uh, yeah, so, you know, I just wanted to, to lay that out there. I'm sure you had, you know, some some thoughts of your own. Yeah, I... <laughs> Some of this is like, I, I agree with what you've put forward so far, and some of my other thoughts are getting more into the second half of the series in a way where like I would rather just save it for our next discussion episode. I do, I like, I think Ina, in terms of the women character in the show, is the one who, I don't even know if saying is developed the most, is actually accurate, but like has the most potential for having some really interesting this is also part of why i want more of like what is the nobility side what's going on over here because i feel like that's where we would get so much more of like who is Ina as a person what are our thoughts beyond these little glimpses that we see you know who is she as like a complete person who is existing in this society and and piloting as a test pilot and doing all this stuff and I want to get to episode seven through 12 to talk more about that. But I do like already that she does feel like she has more interesting nuance and complexity than a lot of the characters. And I think that remains true in terms of the, the female characters in this show. But yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to have more complete thoughts next time because I'm going to have the like extra material to pull for from, um, this might be a point where I'm just going to like go to the gender happens with Karen. For um, sure. I was waiting for that. I yeah. Knew, I knew it was coming. Because they get like, I love Karen so much, even though compared to Ina, like I, I really don't think they, like, I don't think this show f- fully understands what to do with her. They have a badass like commander lady and they don't really know fully how to go beyond that. And uh, we'll get to the next episode and some of the stuff that they do do with her. Like, I just don't enjoy <clears throat> in a way that, like, I don't think they do Ina quite as dirty. But the big moment here, like, <laughs> the gender happens is I forget even the exact context. It's been a little bit since I've watched this episode. Uh, Sanders this. is trying to, like, resign, basically. He's yeah. trying to, like, quit from being a pilot. And then they're like probing him about it, and he admits that it's because like he thinks they're all going to die because of his curse. Yeah, and so then Karen is like, basically, don't you have any balls? And then kicks him in the balls, and then is like, oh, so you actually do? Um, the first t- no, the second time that I watched O Eight MS Team because again, the first time I watched this <laughs> high school, I in was a high. Cloud of smoke. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, the second time I watched this, the first time I watched it with a clear head and also knowing that I am trans, especially when this moment happened, I was like, not that this is in the same way with Major Kusanagi, where I'm like, oh, this is clearly resonating with trans stuff, but of like, oh, this feels like it could be continuing to push towards like some kind of tropey stuff around trans women that will come up as like jokes where, you know, she's tall she is buff her last name is joshua which is a like male name and then we get this thing of her being like don't you have balls kicking sanders um as if to imply like i do or whatever and so like when i was rewatching this a couple years ago 
for the the first time with a clear head, I was like, oh, did I just like, I know I vaguely watched this in a, in a haze. Is Karen just like explicitly trans? I don't know. Like, will they, maybe it'll be a slight shitty joke that they do later on, but I'm still like excited about this. I'm going to like say, I'm going to go on a digression right here. There have been thing there have been multiple things that I've listened to lately where people have talked about anime's poor handling of trans femme people and the handling of trans femme people within anime is often problematic and is sometimes problematic in ways that feel like it might be more invalidating of like here's a specific stated like pronoun or name or they might have like jokes that are around revealing that this character is trans there are still a lot of trans women and trans femme people broadly, um, like kind of beyond binary, but that still are going on this certain axis, who strongly identify with anime and with characters in anime who are portrayed as trans femme or have these resonances. And I, what I am about to say is, again, not to say that like anime thus has a perfect, great representation of these people. <laughs> But when I look at so much of what we get in the West for a very long time, I think this is just now starting to change and it's slow. There's still a lot of stuff that doesn't do this right. But like it's really been within the last few years. Sensei was like the first time that I sat down and watched a show. And anytime that Nomi and Amanita were on screen, I like literally started crying and Emily was worried and was like, why are you crying? And I was like, this is a show with a trans woman who's in a relationship with a like cis woman. They're lesbians. It's portrayed as normal and loving. There's like no weird shit around it. This is a portrayal of trans women that says that like you can be trans and you can be loved, which was just a thing that I never got in Western media. It's part of the reason why it took me so long to come out is whenever trans people would come up in Western media, it was in a few forms. There's one of like the Ace Ventura. It is literally the joke that this is a man and it's like a horrible thing and it's so grossed out or whatever. The quote-unquote great representations that we often get of trans women in media is, like, the Danish girl. And fuck the Danish girl. Um, like, even if it was a trans actress, maybe if it was a trans actress, it that person could have actually, like, put their foot down and made that slightly better. But so much of Western depictions of trans women is, like, look at this this pitiful thing. Look at this thing deserving of pity. It is, it is positive, in this way that it is like viewing it as uh, such a sad thing to be. Go back and like watch Dirty Pair. There's an entire episode where they are hired to go find this guy's son who eloped with a woman. The reveal at the end is that she's a trans woman and the Dirty Pair is just like literally like, what the fuck's your problem to the dad? Like the <laughs> trans people exist. One in 10 people uh, have like undergone transition. It's the future now. Um, and it's like, it's kind of played as a joke, but it is a joke that prevent presents this person as someone who's able to have a life outside of being pitied for like the only thing that they are is trans. And that is a thing that is pitiable or something that is like inspiring or whatever. There are so many representations of trans women or trans femme people within anime where even if there are sometimes stuff that comes up, that's kind of gross or shitty, that person is still often allowed to be a character who has lots of other things about them that is beyond just like, then the final reveal, like a, a big thing I'm going to bring up here because I know people are aware of it. 
There's a character in Catherine called Erica who, in one of the possible endings you can get, is revealed to be a trans woman and is revealed through kind of a shitty joke of like, oh, this the newest friend who joined the friend group started dating her and didn't realize that she was a trans woman and now is like, oh no, I'm like, ugh. I'm so like embarrassed that this happened that I dated a trans woman. And I didn't even know that I was being attracted to her. It's like playing into the gross uh, trap stuff. Mm-hmm. There's also another weird thing about it, which is that, so the conceit within Catherine is that all of the men are having these, these weird dreams about being sheep who are trying to climb a like giant tower. And Erica is also having these dreams which is also kind of like a shitty essentialist thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, Erica within Catherine is allowed to be a full character who has a personality, who interacts with the group, who is friends with these people who like, there's so much about Erica that I love that if I look at the Danish girl, or if I look at so many other depictions with like before the last maybe five years within Western media, especially Western media reaching any kind of scale of like anime or video games, it's just not there like this. So even when gross stuff comes up, there is still like weird validating, like the joke could be at the end, like, oh, and then it's revealed that Karen used to be a man, quote, used to be a man. I'm like putting heavy scare quotes here in yeah. terms of like how it would probably be revealed. And I would still love Karen. And I would actually probably love the fact that, that I was canon, even though the way it was re- revealed was shitty. This doesn't happen. But I'm still seeing sign markers that like me being tuned into this where I'm like, this could be something that they're then going to reveal because they're doing these things that could be pointing to it as like, haha, funny. But at the same time, she's allowed to be like this badass woman who's the head of a, you know, battalion who has these other things going on. I don't like what happens with Elidor in the next episode, which maybe we'll get to soon. I don't know if you have more thoughts on episode four, <laughs> um, but like. I could, I could see us get there, even though, like, romance... I don't even... I don't like how the romance starts being shoehorned with, like... I'll just reveal what happens in episode four, which is there's a part where Elidor is, like, delirious on pain meds and, like, accidentally gropes her boob, and then she, like, blushes and seems to... It's implied that she, like, has a crush on him. And then he somehow has a crush on her, too. It's stupid. <laughs> I, I don't like it. And yet, like, even just the reference of, like, oh how does she know this like field medicine? I guess further for episode five, Elador gets like severely wounded. <laughs> how does she know this field medicine? And like, Oh, her husband was a doctor and he died. And it's just like, I want more of that story. Like, give me more of like Karen dealing with, I lost someone in this war, blah, blah, blah. We mm-hmm. don't really get it, but it's, it's already gesturing to it in a way where this character feels more fleshed out. So that this is me like explaining why my head canon is that Karen is trans and part of why I love her, even though in general, I don't think the show knows what to do with her. Um, and I wish that they actually developed her more. So gender happened and I had feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I Big think, surprise. Um, there's also like an aspect of this that, you know, Karen, like, how should I put this? Um, so Karen like kicks Sanders in the balls and is like, oh, like you're not a man or like, oh, well, maybe you are because you have balls. But like, you know, I thought you weren't because you were being so cowardly. And there's a way that this is like 
gender is happening in this regard as well of like Karen is demanding a certain type of like performance from Sanders of like you're a man therefore like you're not allowed to feel like afraid or like powerless or like just like hopelessly wracked with guilt over like you know shame and guilt over like survivor's guilt and it it's interesting like that 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 is part of this like along with everything that you just brought up yeah um, now imagine if that scene happened and then we find out that karen's husband died and then we actually get like an interesting exploration about survivor's guilt from karen's perspective that would be great i would love that version of 08th ms team <laughs> yeah um, not that I don't still have fondness for this series, but like, imagine that, imagine that world. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, if I, I, I too would like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I slightly der- derailed you, but like to, to get it back on track, I do agree. Like there's some sort of, they're pushing at some sort of theme that I feel like is tying it in with some of the overall stuff that you're drawing out about the instrument, uh, instrumentalization of people in this war. And like, I guess, sorry to disappoint that they're not going to explore this more with Karen Yeah, because I do feel like this moment could become interesting if they actually did that. And I I think this is one of those reasons why like, Oh, wait, the MS team is so much of what's good and bad about Gundam is that like they could have done that, but they actually so often Gundam doesn't really know what to do with its like women characters. And this is another case of like, oh, if you just like actually knew what to do here, it would be so good. You would actually like be able to pull this out into something really incredible. Um, and instead it kind of just like they start it and then they're like, we don't know what to do. Women scare us. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is like you know, it's an OVA and there's not a lot of content for them to work with. Um, so I will, you know, I'll put that caveat out there as like, I understand, you know, I understand that. I'm not saying that, I mean, if they had really like set out to do that, they could have done it. So it's not an excuse, but I do think that like, to go back to, to the point that you just made, what's interesting about this is how it, it shows how like gender and sexuality gets pulled in to like this larger, you know, it it almost gets um, not subsumed, but like it also gets instrumentalized by like, you know, the immensity of like warfare and it's like all consuming appetite for lack of a better word, or it's just like, it's, it's all consuming totality that just like pulls in all of these it pulls in and instrumentalizes all these people and like all of their relations and their ways of like understanding themselves and others all just like by necessity because of like what war is and how it works. Um, it all, you know, is being uh, subordinated in a way, including like the, yeah, like, you know, you have to do your patriarchal role as like, especially so because like we're in a war and you know like being an effective soldier like in this context in our world and like in a war 
relies on you like not having like no like relies on all of us not being able to feel like these emotions or express them which you know i think is a good segue for episode five where yeah i was gonna say i feel like we just ended up talking about episode five before doing the synopsis (laughs) for sure um but you know We'll do this. I hate that boob grope. I hate that boob grope. It's like (laughs) Um, it and and Kiki coming out of that pool are my like the two least favorite moments in this entire series for me. I think, even though like I feel like they are touching at other things that could get interesting. It's just the handling of it is so bad. Yeah, it's 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 ham fisted (laughs) to say the least, and that like that's not a pun. I did not intend that to be a pun. God damn but, it. God. <laughs> I just realized it as soon as I said it, and then I was like, God damn it. I have to say it's not, because, you know, it's going to come off like it is. Okay, the synopsis. So, episode five. Um, Eldor, we find out he's a musician, and uh, he wants to have a cel- <laughs> to have a celebration because his song is getting pressed on record. Which like, I want to say, like, very quickly here. This actually works for me. Like it, people were making music in like horrible conditions. This is how people deal with horrible stuff: is that they make songs and art and things like that. Um, and so this like fully works for me. Like I don't care if a bunch of people died. There's still gonna be someone who's like, and I want to write a song about love and peace, and I want to hear it on the radio. And that feels very realistic and like true to me about humanity. That even in the like face of great tragedy there are still people who are going to want to create art and sometimes that art is just going to be a cheesy pop song well i'm i'm with you with on all of that but like what really stands out to me is like they still have they're still like pressing songs to records (laughs) like what the fuck we have like mecca and you're still pressing songs to records right now (laughs) Like, what the fuck is happening Listen, with the technology in this world? Vinyl had a huge resurgence. You have space travel, and you're still like, oh, this is, like, our main method of, like, <laughs> pr- like music production is, like, like it, pressing shit to vinyl. It could be literally they have, like, some new technology that is called record or something and then it's like <laughs> you call it like pressing a record but it literally just means that you're like hitting publish on audacity um, yeah you know we we say shit like i am going to scribe a letter and it's like no you're fucking not you who, who says <laughs> you're gonna who sit says, at your computer and you're gonna type an email shut the fuck up <laughs> I, I know what you're saying but like no one says i'm going to scribe a letter but i know what you're i know like the point you're making um Okay, synopsis. So Eldor, like, he's, you know, taking advantage of this newfangled, you know, technology that they call a record to quote-unquote press his song. Um, (laughs) And he, in celebration of this, like, achievement, he is super excited and he is, like, wants to go to the village and have a drink. And he ropes Michelle into it. Turns out, uh, the village is like abandoned and occupied by Xeon forces because the Absalus is there um, being repaired. So the village has been occupied. Um, so obviously Eldor and Michelle are captured. 
they're going to be executed, but they like have this great um, slapstick bit where they like fight each other. Then the guard comes in and is like, stop that. And then they knock out the guard and escape. Um, Basically by accident. It's like Elidor trying to hit Michelle and missing and hitting the guard. Yeah. But like, <laughs> meanwhile, while this is happening, like Shiro is like, gotta save my team. So like Kiki and Shiro, and Kiki's part of the team now too, by the way. Um, yeah. Like uh, Kiki and Shiro and Karen and Sanders, I think Sanders is involved. Um, they're all like staging, you know, begin to stage this rescue operation. And uh, there's a bit about like Eldor is kind of like claustrophobic or something. So they hijack it um, like a construction mech and he won't close the hatch. So he gets shot because he's afraid of closing the, the hatch. And then uh, the Absalus, like the repairs are completed and it, it takes off and everyone like, you know, reconnects. Although Eldor is in really bad shape because he's been shot. So Karen performs field surgery on him and um, basically, you know, saves his life. And there's a, a boob group moment, which we've discussed. And uh, Eldor is uh, transferred to the rear line and is driven off in a, on the back of a truck on his um, stretcher. Yeah, honestly, the the Elidor being transferred to a rear line is like the biggest saving grace here. Um, because it just means that like them doing anything with Karen and Elidor is going to be at least on hiatus for a little bit because he's not there. So, um, otherwise, yeah, we, we've talked about our feelings on this moment. Um, it is definitely the most, like even the Kiki stuff, the way that it happens with like Kiki having a crush on Shiro, like, doesn't feel very realistic or make that much sense. But like the idea that Kiki would have a crush in Shiro like works plot wise and makes sense to me. And the way that like this whole thing with Karen and Elidor just feels so completely and utterly shoehorned for like, yeah, it's just, it's bizarre. I like, I don't understand it at all. (laughs) And I hate it. I hate all of it. Yeah. I think like, I'm just going to put this out there, not because I think this is like makes it worthwhile or better. I think what what they're trying to go for is like, oh, you know, like her husband died. So she hasn't had like any intimacy and like blah, blah, blah. You know, that's why this is so like affecting for her. I think that's like what they're going for. Um, (laughs) Again, I'm not like not justifying that. Yeah. But that's my read on like what I think is like being attempted. It's it's such a lack of understanding about women like women masturbate too. <laughs> we don't need yeah. a random guy to grope our boob while we're doing field surgery on them to <laughs> to feel something. Like <laughs> I especially given Karen, like who Karen is she knows how to masturbate. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and I will say, like, I don't have any insight, obviously, into, like, what the internal, like, experience of sexuality is for, like, women in general, and especially not for, like, 
or and, and and as well not for like young women or girls but there's a way that like i i agree with you that there's the kiki and shiro thing like makes a little bit more sense to me notwithstanding the like way that starts but the fact that there's like a crush there makes a little bit more sense than like again the karen and eldor thing it's just like you know that's yeah it, it seems like completely forced and like unbelievable like i can't even like it's so hard for me to see elador even as karen's type right like I, yeah i definitely maybe but like i feel like if that was your type it some like we would have seen signs of it <laughs> yeah by now we're in episode five <laughs> this is this is an ova we're almost to the halfway point yeah, yeah i think it's just like a rare thing you know, I, I'm sorry that I'm terming this, that I'm using Rare Earth to name this, but where it's just like, yeah, we're going to force this. Yeah. This, like, this character clearly, like, they don't fit, but, like, we're just going to force this. So, okay, I will say, like, to to maybe, like, make a slightly, to maybe make a, a case for why um, Oath actually does have something to offer in terms of its portrayal of sexuality. So, like, as we've discussed, sexuality is noticeably more foregrounded in this series than in, like, the pretty much all the other UC stuff. Just to run through a few, like, notes that I had, Kiki, like, being introduced naked, there is th- this thing we didn't really touch on, but when she, when we see her father, she's, like, wrapped around him, and it's not immediately said that it's her father. And I think that like the series is strongly implying in a way that seems intentional of like that there is this like sexual relationship between them that there's like this much older man who's the leader of these gorillas that she's a part of this group and like they have some sort of sexual relationship. And then that is like allowed to, you're allowed to think that for like a period of time and it's this really like strange for me it was shocking when i like before i before they tell you it's her dad i was like whoa that's really heavy and then they're like oh yeah it's it's her dad and i'm like oh okay but yeah i mean they they play this like similar trick as well with Ina when it's like, Oh, here's Ina. And then who's this guy? And like, they let you think that they're dating for at least like part of that episode before it's like, Oh brother. And even then there's like, if you're, if you're super vested or if you're super familiar with anime, you might even be like, this could still just be the like Oni-chan like trope. (laughs) Right. And like, no, it becomes clear. Like, no, they're just brother and sister. But, like, this show twice does the, like, oh, what's going on here? And then it's just, like, oh, no, it's, just like, full-on familial love. And we're not actually going to do, like, we're not going to do anything with it. But we, like, let you believe that it's something else for a little bit. Um, yeah. And and it's, it's even more, like, it stands out to me more with uh, Kiki and her dad because it's, like, what they let you believe is that there's like seemingly this like 14 year old girl who's in like this relationship with this like 
50 year old man and yeah which is just noticeably more shocking and also at this point we haven't gotten anything really with like kiki having a crush on shiro Mm -hmm. um like this is like literally where we learn that her name is kiki and is like really the introduction to her as a character beyond just a girl in a pool and so it's also different than you know before we see aina and guineas we get the like oh clearly there's going to be some sort of love story here um and the like initial tease is more of like oh is it going to be a love triangle oh no it's just her brother whereas this is more just like oh here's this character like here's our first real introduction to her so yeah i I think it does like hit weirder and harder here than with aina but also it is a like a trick that they they pull multiple times yeah and and we know they're doing it because of like the fact that they pull the same trick with like aina and genius yeah Um, so we know that this is like a thing that they're you know doing explicitly so yeah, so this implication, this really heavy implication, the pictures of naked women hanging around Yuri, uh, harassing slash hitting on Ina, then Eldor um, groping Karen. So, yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's in line with the less like epic and more intimate focus of the series, which kind of dwells on like, you know, people's quotidian like. Or they're like everyday interactions that aren't just like this high highfalutin combat shit. But like more importantly, I think if you start to consider all of these things together as like an overall portrait, there is this bleak portrait of sexuality that is like being set up of sexuality as something that is like exploited, instrumentalized, used, desperate like in this arena of warfare um like combat in the army this also like dovetails with the series insistence on portraying like the desperation of combat more generally and you know i'm not going to get into like like irl sexual assault and stuff in the military and in combat situations but i just want to like briefly refer to that as you know, a reference point for this and like something that I think the series is, it seems to be considering like as part of like how are we portraying sexuality in this overall portrayal of war that we're trying to make like a little bit more naturalistic and also like by that token, like bleak. I also think this is important for understanding the way the series is like the way the star-crossed lovers trope starts to come into play and the role it plays um, thematically in the narrative, how it kind of takes on a different life in 08th. So with this like general portrayal of sexuality, all more or less kind of being characterized by this, at least on my view, being characterized by these, you know, this exploitation, this desperation. The thing that stands out is Shiro and Aina's relationship, which is like opposite in many ways. So it's not seemingly not grounded on like exploitation or convenience or like, you know, some sort of like immediate like utility or something. In fact, like, 
all circumstance, sociopolitical force is arrayed to make this relationship impossible. The way they meet, like, they should probably just kill each other. So just the basic, like, circumstance of their first meeting, they could have killed each other in combat. When they're shooting at each other, like, one person has to choose, you know, or Shiro has to choose, like, oh, I'm going to see the humanity in this other soldier. Like, everything from their, like, the impossibility of their their initial meeting, the fact they have no ties to each other, like, their opposite sides of, a, like, a fucking war is, like, making this relationship really inconvenient and, like, inexpedient and um, impossible to realize. So... But the fact that they they have it anyway, due to this like quasi magical love type thing, um, positions it more as like this quote unquote ideal or like a, a romantic um, vision of sexuality that's you know not not bound or like constrained by these other things that we see like everyone else being subject to their sexuality being instrumentalized in all these ways. Like Shiro and Aya's relationship is like the opposite. But for that reason, like at least so far, it's unattainable. So I certainly don't think that the series is being like, oh, like Shiro and Aya's relationship is like good and right and like without flaw in what should be pursued. Um, I think it's it's setting up for a critique of that as well, which we already kind of see here. Like it's you know not possible to attain, which is which is the case in the previous iterations of this trip as well. But there's like there's kind of two poles being set up here, where this trope exists at one end, and then like this other kind of like pattern of like portrayals of sexuality is kind of existing at the other, and they seem to be like in engagement with one another. Yeah, I I was kind of laughing a little bit while you were talking because, again, I know the second half of the series. I think you are pulling out some interesting things that, like, we are going to, to touch on. And I don't know if I fully agree with you in terms of, like, how some of this is actually then ending up being handled. And it's I think some of that is just me knowing it. But, like, I, my thought going in for you and for listeners who are watching this for the first time is whether or not the way that the series, cause the series is going to develop some of what you're talking about. And I, I think next time we're going to be talking about what parts of it does it choose to develop and what parts does it not seem to full, like develop further and is that actually doing justice to the themes that I think you are, you are correctly pointing to like, they are pulling them out and could do interesting things with them here. And I think we can have an interesting discussion next time about how much we think they actually succeed at playing through some of those themes. And I'm obviously what I'm saying, that's somewhat tipping my hand in in terms of my (laughs) opinion, but also it's been a few years since I like watched the series, maybe after having this conversation with you, I'll be able to see it with fresh eyes and have a different take on it. So, but yeah, like going into it, that's from what you just said. Next time we discuss, I want to, 
like revisit some of that stuff and say like okay how did it actually develop this what part of it do we think we is like interesting and what part of it do we think maybe didn't actually develop it as much as we wanted it to or whatever mm-hmm. and do our points of view on that differ as well and does that differing come from our familiar with the series i don't know um we'll we'll get there but i mean that's my like main response is um in this moment i want to say i slightly disagree with you but also i don't fully know because we haven't gotten to seven through 12 where we would actually get the payoff for this and i want to like actually watch that and talk through with you about it before i have a definitive like no you're wrong connor (laughs) (laughs) um Um, yeah i think uh you know it i i think the thing i want to say here is that i'm not like opposed to media dealing with these themes in ways that um Like, I don't think that no media can ever show, like, terrible portrayals of how real-world humans interact with sexuality and, like, the mistreatment of women in that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, like... But I I think if you're going to have stuff like what happens with Kiki, like, what the series does with Kiki and what the series does with Karen, I at least want to see it pay off. And I want us to talk about how well we think it like actually carries those themes through when we get there. But in the interest of time, we're at like three hours of recording now. (laughs) Yes. Let's talk about episode six. Yes. Let's let's finally wrap this up. So episode six, uh, the 08th MS team are out scouting for the potential testing grounds. Uh, So they're basically like, Hey, we know about this apps list. We encountered it once. We kind of saw it taking off. I forget who all sees it, but I think at least like Michelle sees it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's this like reconnaissance, them talking to people basically being like, Hey, did you have any UFO sightings recently? (laughs) (laughs) And finding this desert area where they think um, the apps list will appear again. And a lot of the episode is actually them waiting in the desert for the apps to show up. And we get one, we get this stuff about like the actual sands, uh, sand in the gears, having to clean it out, having to maintain these machines, them being like prone to the just environment and the way that the environment can affect them as like, uh, machinery which i do enjoy again i want either weird arcane magic mechs or just like super mechanical like did you do the upkeep that you needed to do to keep this thing in fighting shape or is the like fact that you didn't do this little piece replace this one part that was like starting to give out going to become a crucial part of the <laughs> failure or whatever um roll at a disadvantage yeah so that's part of it but a lot of it ends up being these tensions in the group where i think uh so part of it is them focusing on michelle being out of sorts because they got this breakup letter from uh bb his girlfriend um it's actually funny if you like read the french that they show they'll like show the first page of the letter repeatedly and it's literally just like oh it's like raining here i don't like when it rains but like sometimes it's nice when i'm working in the house I got some books. They have some translations of French stuff into Japanese, but I like reading the originals. You know, I I, I have been reading the Japanese newspaper, though, or, like, whatever. Um, it's just, like, complete... Not the text that yeah. he reads. 
yeah um it it's like humorous in just how like boring and terrible of a letter it is <laughs> get a better girlfriend michelle um but anyway yeah I, michelle gets this breakup letter from bb although the the contents of that letter is not revealed towards the end of this sequence of like him being out of it not really paying attention blah 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 um they don't lean like it's brought up of like Elidor's not here and that's almost like brought up as an excuse but the show seems to suggest that's not actually the real reason that like Michelle can't keep up with all the demands of the rest of the the 08 MS team have of him um but it, it really comes to this head where like I think the core tension is Kiki getting the letter, reading, laughing, like, oh, you got this love letter from your girlfriend, and then realizing it's this breakup letter. And there's some bonding between Kiki and Michelle that's nice here. Like, this is the ship that makes sense. They're they're both similar in age. I, I would buy them more as a couple. I would find it less creepy. Not going to reveal whether or not the show's going to go in that direction, but I at least like them, like even as it is this like, oh no, I was teasing you and I didn't actually realize what this was about. I'm sorry. And then like, no, I'm going to be open with you. It's just like nice inner connection, like people bonding over something that's not, that starts out kind of weird. Um, I'm a brat. So like (laughs) Kiki is also a brat. That's my biggest love for Kiki is the way that we are both brats and the let me tease you. Oh no, this actually turns into us opening up to each other about our feelings. That rings true for me. <laughs> um, that like hits home. Um, but it also then comes to a head of like it all kind of coming into play of Kiki has this unrequited crush on Shiro. Um, Shiro at this point, the characters all assume is unrequited crush on Ina because they've now found the photo in the watch that's Ina and Guineas and they're assuming that it's her boyfriend and not her brother and then you know Michelle who's just been broken up with having this line I forget the exact wording of it but being like is unrequited love the only love that you care about where it like comes to a head I feel like you kind of have to be like bought into romance plots to enjoy this episode but it generally works for me I feel like it is starting to do some more interesting things with some of the tropes they've been playing with especially with um the Shiro and Ina story up till this point but then it ultimately culminates in the final confrontation between the 08th MS team and the Absolus when it appears. Uh, there's significant use of beam weaponry in this episode. I'm actually not sure the exact like uh, extent of beam weaponry within first Gundam and like the UC Gundam stuff. I know within Iron Blooded Orphans, like when beam weapons show up, it's like a huge thing. It's like, holy shit, there are fucking beam weapons. This is like terrifying so and like some of it does feel terrifying in this episode um Mm -hmm. especially the like weird shockwave beam thing that the absolus does yeah and when they're like surveying the the weapons testing ground and they're just like again there's like this horror movie type feel to when they're like examining the just like gash that the beam weapon has carved out of this rock and being like what the fuck is this yeah. And then slowly deducing like, oh my god, this is a this is like the weapon that this thing has. But yeah, and so then 
in the fight, there's a part where Shiro in his ground Gundam uh, jumps on the Apsilis. There's like a moment of her trying to scrape the Gundam off of the Apsilis, like against a cliff face, but is hanging on. And then they like both say something. And of course, mecha anime rules. As long as your mechs are close enough, you can hear each other talk. And they're like, wait, that voice. And they know, they realize that it, you know, Ina realizes it's Shiro. Shiro realizes it's Ina. And so Ina takes off in the Apsilis with Shiro's Gundam, clinging on to it. In general, I've often tried to avoid cliffhangers for, like, the way that I'm structuring the episodes here. But this is, like, full-on cliffhanger. Um, in some ways, it, it one is just, like, it's 12 episodes. It makes sense to do six and six. Mm-hmm. The other one is that, as I mentioned before the director for the first six episodes, Takeyuki Kanda, died tragically in a car accident, and then 7 through 12 was a different director, Umanosuke Aida. I don't know how much the director necessarily actually changes the plot, the way that things are handled. I do like the second half more in a lot of ways, even though I also have qualms with some of it, but yeah, we can maybe talk about that next time of like, mm-hmm. do we feel like the director really changed things here? Like the change in directors, even if it was for a kind of, uh, not kind of, but like definitely tragic reason. Um, so yeah, that's, this is kind of where we're leaving off. Um, I don't have a, a ton to say here. You might have a little bit just to wrap us up, but I think the one bit, I forget exactly where it even happens, but there's a moment where, Karen looks at Kiki in this knowing way of like, oh, honey, you have a crush on him. And it's this like small moment of characterization for Karen that I, I like. I feel like we often don't get, especially with some of these characters like Karen, we get the moment where they animate the small look that feels meaningful. And so this, it stood out to me and it, it was one that, um, I don't entirely know how to read her, like, look at Kiki there, but I don't know. Also, the whole Elidor thing just, like, makes it weirder to me. <laughs> yeah. So it's I like, now you it. have a crush on Elidor? What the fuck? Um, but yeah. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't know what happens in, like, the second. Maybe I'll, like, reserve my, like, any further analysis of, like, the Karen Elidor thing for, like, for our next discussion. I think... My read on this look, also, I think for every series, we have to just, like, at some point be like, hey, they just animate, like, this look that happens. Let's talk about that. Um, Let's talk but, about the the two times that Tomino animates someone accidentally raising the wrong hand to do a handshake and then <laughs> do a different hand. Um, it, uh, but my read on this look is, like, if I remember right... When it happens is like you know, Kiki's kind of like trying to get to like have some intimacy with Shiro or like get his attention or whatever for a large part of the episode and he's just like not having it. Yeah, and, she's doing it in a full on brat way, which again I identify with. <laughs> yeah, and Shiro is just like like being a he's like being a dick in in a way of like it feels like he's kind of intentionally ignoring it. Like he perceives it. And then on the other hand, they're like at the same time, it's like 
no, I'm trying to like plan this ambush and be a commander right now. And I'm trying to like deal with that. So I can't figure out like, or I, I can't like, I'm not aware of this because I'm like so wrapped up in trying to be this, like perform this role. But like she, Kiki eventually is just like has enough of it and just like starts laying into Shiro and like that's and then like storms off and when she's just like laying into him is when Karen gives this look and my read of this look was more like I'm proud of you for doing this like I'm amused and proud that like Kashiro deserves this and like I'm glad that you're like essentially like giving him shit like I gave Sanders shit but more importantly like stand like asserting yourself um yeah I in think this way like, some of the pity i read into it is that like if you ever like have a friend who's dating some person who you think is kind of awful for them and um it's not that great of a relationship and yet often you're like putting on a face because you you don't want to just be like a jerk about it and then there's just that like moment where they go off on them and you're like Oh, I can like let my my guard down a little bit more and be like, "Hey, I'm glad this is happening." Yeah, I'm like, I'm glad this is happening. I'm kind of sorry it's happening, and I feel bad for you that you like have this affections for this person who I think is kind of a dick. But I'm like, I'm also in the same moment slightly glad that maybe you're seeing it too, and like that we're maybe getting at a point where I can start saying like, "So hey, like." why don't we talk about this person? Like, so what do you see in them? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a moment that I like, I enjoy that look and it, it, I like the fact that it's not f- fully immediately easy to read, but that there is like, this is another moment that's pointing towards some sort of greater exploration between these two women characters and their relationship to romance and Karen being able to like, maybe reveal some stuff about her husband that she had or like blah, blah, blah potentialities for will the next six episodes provide what I want. We will see. Find out next time. And on by the way, the 08th MS team. Do you want to say anything else before I like literally just go into rapping now? Um, so I will if you have a take on this viewers if you have a take on this if you think we're wrong if you think we're right if you have a take that's like different you know those are the three options um right right into the question bucket you know or like tweet at us ghostdiverspod at gmail.com I also I want to throw it out there um I I want to discuss Michelle next time uh we told the have just like we've given We've given a good amount of attention to, like, other characters. We haven't really talked about Michelle. I feel like he's a significant character. I want to do him justice. And Yeah, like, I mean, we we got to episode six without ever mentioning that the, like, one of the conceits of his character throughout this entire series, starting with, like, literally while Shiro Amada is going out in the ball unit, Michelle's like, I'm going to write this letter to my girlfriend. I'm like on this ship and this idiot just went out in a ball unit, my like new commander is going to die. And I'm like, Oh no, I'm going to have to rewrite my letter because you didn't (laughs) die. (laughs) Um, And I I will say like, this does have some personal significance for me 
like his whole like long distance relationship you know with bb like as someone who has been who is in like a long-term long distance relationship this does like hit me i don't want to like you know sap everything up by by going down that road but like i you know i have an affinity for that that's subplot yeah, i mean emily and i are obviously married and live together now and have a kid and everything but we started dating in high school and then we went to universities where i was in upper michigan and she was in georgia and both of us were in art school and despite the stereotype you actually have very little free time in art school (laughs) because it turns out when your homework is also you creating a piece of art that you are going to want to perfect uh you actually just work on it constantly (laughs) yeah so in a, in a strange coincidence, I think, like, Emily and my girlfriend, I'm, like, pretty certain of this, are, go to the same school. Or she went, my girlfriend currently goes, but... Um, if it's the art school in Georgia, then probably. <laughs> yes, it is. It's it's that one, you know? Um, yeah. The only one. So, okay, you know, Michelle, I want to do him justice. Um, I do think... His and also just to like for the purposes of bringing this in to our earlier discussion, you know, I laid out my thesis about how sexuality and relationships, like what I think is kind of being set up, some of the dynamics. I cannot omit Michelle and BB, I think exists somewhere on the Shiro Aina side and is significant as like a third pole in this whole like dynamic or just another node in it like depending on your take but michelle and bb is uh, like another one of the relationships that is like in dialogue or it's like brought in as part of this dynamic like within the show yeah has significance a formalistic way that they even do this is I think it's even in the same episode where we see Elador with the like, here's a picture of a nude woman hanging up on my side of the tank. We also see Michelle writing a letter with a photo hanging up of him and BB in the background that like, you know, they're just like a normal picture that you would see of a couple where they're like, you know, kind of heads together. Like we, we get, even that, like, okay, here we see the the contrast between the two. And then we also see this, like, oh, here's this long-distance relationship, this, like, kind of more traditional, ideal form of a relationship or something. Um, it's not this, like, highly sexualized, highly charged thing that we're seeing that could then be pointing more towards Shiro and Aina, except that here at least we already get the like realization of the star crossed lovers trope of like it ends with them having to break up or something like there's the tragic ending of like the relationship can no longer continue except in this case it's like literally just oh like you're off at war and it's just like it's too hard for me every day to wonder am i even going to get a letter every time i get a letter it's like is this going to be the last one i just can't do this anymore and it just being like that 
war tearing people apart just in like the difficulty of distance and what it means to be in a relationship with someone who is on a battle line and could die literally any moment yeah absolutely you know i think it's just to kind of like add add to what you're saying a little bit though it's it's distinct from like shiro and aina in the sense of like you know, this is a relationship that has been realized. Like, obviously, they've been together at some point in the past, like, physically together. Um, They're not on warring sides. <laughs> right. Like, they actually have a relationship that is, like, they're trying to have, like, an actual relationship. So it's been realized. Um, but now, like, the circumstance of war is tearing them apart, and they're trying to, like, cope with that. Whereas, like, Shiro and Aina is like, oh, we have this, like, totally idealized romance that really isn't even like at this point attained or like a thing and so like because of this distance so we don't have to like it's like oh we're in a relationship and we have to cope with the realities of this war like they don't even have like a thing yet there's not even a relationship like a a substance like to it because it's still in this like totally idealized form um yeah at this point like it might as well just be an unrequited love that shiro has right Um, which it might as well just be a crush yeah um which i think is like it you know michelle's comment to shiro of like is unrequited love all you care about again it is feels very significant in terms of tying all this together so I, you know, I went on, I know you wanted to rap, but I wanted to give Michelle uh, the stage for a minute and uh, we can talk, you know, revisit all of that in our next discussion. Which uh, will be in two weeks. So we'll, we'll be back here, dear listener. If you are watching along, we are going to be watching episodes seven through 12 of the 08th MS team. And Connor and I are also going to watch Miller's report. To be honest, unless like you really want to be completionist about it, if you're watching along and you don't want to hunt down Miller's report and watch an hour-long, like mostly clip show movie that has like a few minutes of new content, you're you're probably good. You can still just watch the other, you know, watch seven through twelve and be like, okay, I I got it, and then you can come listen to us, and we'll be like, here's the tiny bit that they added with Miller's report. Um, but if you do want to watch it, I would recommend waiting until at least episode nine. It technically is set between eight and nine, but I think both in terms of when it was released and also just kind of how it's filling in a gap, I think it'll be more beneficial to watch it after nine rather than after eight, even though when Toonami aired it, they took some from Miller's report and edited it into episode eight. I would still recommend waiting till nine or waiting until I would say either after episode 11 or just after you finish the series. Honestly, if you get to episode 11, just finish it and then watch Miller's report at the end. But 10 and 11 are like a two part episode. So it would be really weird to just throw it in the middle there. (laughs) Um, We're just go crazy, you know? Yeah. Just just throw it in there. Yeah. Hatchet cut of the 08th MST or no machete cut. 
machete cut of the 08 ms team uh so you get to a certain point in this one episode you pause the dvd you pop in miller's report you start watching that when you get to this line set in miller's report go actually back to episode five (laughs) yes Um, or just you know double screen it you know yeah just have miller's report going on one screen you have yeah while you while you watch the other one and then like if you time it up right There'll be like a boring part in the episode anyway, during the parts that are important in Miller's report. So you can kind of just like shift focus a little bit. Um, no, I, again, honestly, unless you really, really want to watch all of it, I recommend like don't bother with Miller's report, but you can watch it if you want. <laughs> I would say I would just say it's less essential if you are watching along than like the actual seven through twelve. Um this is so, the part where we ramble about Miller's report and we're just like, eh, you know, watch it or don't, yeah. you know, it's, it's midnight. I'm tired. I should go to bed. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> long silence. So um, we have, um, you know, some, some other stuff that we normally say at the end of the episode. I think eh. you, you, you can take it, Connor. You can take it. I'm just going to go to bed. <laughs> oh okay um well yeah uh next time uh we're gonna be looking uh discussing looking at discussing i already did this part connor all of the you know the end the end <laughs> of the 08th ms team that's episode 7 through 12 specifically so you can write into the podcast at ghostdiverspod at gmail.com if you have any questions or just general thoughts. We'll do a question bucket where we'll read through those. Uh, if you also just want to talk about how bad this bit was, feel free to send that in. Thank you to the Export Audio Network, exportaud.io. Um, you can also go to patreon.com slash exportaudio, which is just what exportaud.io redirects to. Go there, support the network, uh, support my friends, Thank you again for hosting us. Um, It's very nice to literally have to spend no money on this other than just like the time and the mic that I already bought a long time ago. Um, Yeah. And then Twitter accounts. You can follow us at Ghost Divers Pod on Twitter. Uh, You can follow me at Fox Mom Nia. Where can people follow you, Connor? You can follow me at Rabelais. Um, Some great content there. Yeah. And speaking of great content. Uh, you should also follow uh, at Garf Red Aloud. Oh, what is this Garf Red Aloud? It's it's this really cool thing that uh, I stumbled upon. Um, not yeah, too I believe long you were the first follower of this Twitter account. I think I was. You know, sometimes I'm, when I'm on Twitter, you know, because I'm, I'm very active, I go searching out accounts that seem particularly cool, um, and I found this one. It's it's actually it's a Welsh account. You, you might you might have been able to uh, you might have been able to to deduce that from the name Garfriedalud. Um, no, actually, it is it is a daily account uh, wherein my uh, intrepid comrade uh, that's you um, reads seductively the daily uh, the daily Garfield strip. Um, it's what can I say? It's exquisite. Um, so please follow. Please follow all of these accounts. I'm I'm supposed to be the podcast brat. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me?
Well, this is why I'm a switch. Um, <laughs> there you go. All right. Bye. <laughs> See you next time, everybody. Amaro! No, wait, that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall, oh, we, shall we do our clap? I can't believe we went three and a half hours on Why? six episodes <laughs> of the Wayfamous team. How did we do that? Oh. Oh, my at gosh. Least we, at least we did this separate from the intro. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, okay. and we didn't just, like... I will say, I'm, I'm glad that we re-recorded because, like, I I definitely feel a lot better about this this iteration than last one than the last one. I'm also glad Yeah, also that... when we decided to stop last time, we'd been recording for 2 hours and it literally made it through one episode, which most of that was technical difficulties, but I was still just like oh my god. <laughs> yeah, this is this this recording is we've this is lost. Like yeah. This is, yeah, this is not going to be usable. So, yeah, this was great. I'm I'm pleased with, with how we oh. got through this, even though it took a long time. Like, even despite how down I might sound about some of the second half, I do genuinely like it more. And, like, especially the final three episodes, I they're, like, probably my favorite three episodes of the series. So I'm looking forward to that. And then also talking about why I still don't like parts of it, even though I love those episodes in general. So it'll be yeah, fun. Yeah, I um, I'm really appreciating like this is the first time we've done a series that like I haven't actually seen, and I'm really appreciating like you know again I'm I'm easily pleased when it comes to Gundam, and I try to like pull out the. I try to pull out like what what I like and what I think is like unique and good, but the fact that we've had like this discussion, I'm so much more excited for watching, like, the last six episodes, than I I would have been if I had just like watched this by myself. Now I'm like going going into like the final episodes and I'm just like, 
I'm I'm so excited to like watch them now and see how this shit plays out. Yeah, the there's some like great fights as well. It's just Yeah, it's it'll be fun. It it has been like fun and interesting for me as well hearing you talk about stuff and being like there's some moments where I'm like, wow, it's impressive that like Connor's already pulling this out even though he hasn't seen the second half. And then there are other parts where I'm just like, ooh, ooh, Connor, just wait, wait till we get there. You're going to look like an <laughs> idiot and I'm going to savor every moment of it. Um, um, I don't think that you've said anything that's like completely, this is like totally off base and like not a valid reading or something from my perspective. There's just some moments where I'm like, Oh yeah, this is the excitement of watching something for the first time and seeing these fun themes and not knowing how they're going to tie it up <laughs> and like having a a more like a greater excitement than someone who knows how it actually wraps up because you can see all the potentiality whereas like to me I'm just like, "Oh, I know how this ends." <laughs> like, yeah, it like it doesn't um, like yeah. And there's some of this that is going to be cool and interesting and I'm like excited to talk about it and there's some of this where I'm like Oh, you're going like down a potential route of what this series is doing that like from my perspective, I just don't even think about as a potential thing it could be doing anymore. So, um, although it is interesting with it being two different directors, because there's some of this where I'm like, I wonder if some of the stuff would have been wrapped up differently. I mean, we'll never really know, but yeah, but um, that we can talk about that next time. That will be an interesting discussion. Yeah. And I should let you get to sleep. Yeah. We need to do our final clap. Okay. And that is refresh. All right, we'll do it at 50. Okay. Damn, that's sounding good on my end tonight. Yeah, I'm feeling good about it. All right, cool. Um, All right. Well, with that, I will let you go to sleep. Good night. See ya. Talk to you later. As a quick aside, can you tell me why I thought this was going to potentially be a shorter episode than our Ghost in the Shell <laughs> stuff? I mean, I thought it was going to be short, and then I saw your notes for episode like one and two especially, and I was like, oh no, it's not going to be. Not, not oh no, this is a bad thing, but like, oh, I was just wrong that this is going to be short. Connor is going to have thoughts about First Gundam and is going to say it here. <laughs> Boy, do I. Um, um, it does... It does seem like we have a little bit shorter for the rest, which, again, I feel like we often front load episodes just because, like, we start talking about themes in early episodes, and then we're just like, let's just, like, flesh this out right now and point to later episodes often, and we'll just, like, do it then during that first episode. Um because we want to like talk about how this is tying into a more overarching theme. And then we get to later episodes and it's like, okay, how yeah, let's this check is it back in on stuff. Yeah. So also as a note, I'm still debating if I want to break up the student council saga for Utena into two episodes. Cause it is 13 episodes of the show. Um, it is a slower paced show compared to something like ghost in the shell or even 08th MS team. But I still feel like there's just a lot of themes that we'll probably talk about. And I don't know how much we want to like super rush through the end of the student council saga. So 
yeah, I that's part of why I decided to rewatch it is I was also like, let me just like actually feel this out and if I think is thirteen episodes in fact too much for us to do, which it might be. God, that show's good though. Anyway. <laughs> You're not making it easy on me having to wait to watch it. We'll get there, we'll get there. It's gonna be so worth it. Just yeah. It's okay. it's good. But for now, um, episode four. Oh, I just, I watched this episode today and I was like, oh, did I just like read in how gay this was for this episode? (laughs) And it's like actually more ambiguous. And then I got to the end and I was like, no, it's gay. It's gay. (laughs) It's explicit. They say it. Um, Yeah. So this is like the opposite of what happens in Re-Earth. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. The way we're doing it is we're doing Evangelion, Ray Earth, Utena, but actually, the release order was Ray Earth, Evangelion, Utena. But I still think it makes more sense for us to do Ava first, right after Gundam. Yeah, and um, just do Ava, you know, and then just yeah wipe the slate clean with some wholesome, you know, magical girl anime. <laughs> um, all right. 